broadcasting worldwide from a studio inside global headquarters of RP Enterprises in Kansas City. Hey, gang. Ladies and gentlemen, Papa's home. This is the Papa Ron Podcast. File transfer in progress. With Ronnie Phillips and Jillian Gray. Showtime. Unfortunately, my trusty sidekick, Jillian, couldn't be here for this episode of the Papa Ron Podcast. You know, it's summertime, she's got kids, there's ball games and activities, and she's got to do the mom thing. So, unfortunately, she won't be joining us in a brand new season of the Papa Ron Podcast. This is episode 38, and I guess I shouldn't have to feel apologetic for not having a podcast in the last two months, but I do feel guilty about it. It's just been a crazy, crazy couple months. I had to go to Canada the first week of May to film an episode of Heartland Waterfowl, which we're real excited about that brand new season, season 10, coming out here in just a couple weeks on Sportsman's Channel. But anyway, so then once getting back and I got this new position as marketing leader over at Dell's Power Sports and there's a lot of events that was going on there. And so I just felt like I had to prioritize and unfortunately the Papa Ron podcast was not on the top of the priority list. However, there has now been a gap. There's been an opening and an opportunity to get back into the groove of things and excited to be back at it and uh, excited about today's guest or this week's guest because um, it's through a mutual friend that we were able to be connected. And I guess we're going to be talking, uh, is it fair to say that it's going to be like mental health, personal development and everything in between, right? I, I would say so. But I mean, that encompasses so many things. So. It does. It really does <laughs> encompass a lot. So without further ado, I should, uh, if I can get my mouse, my cursor to work here. Uh, today's guest is Kara Payton. She's an author, motivational speaker, authenticity strategist, subconscious reprogramming expert, a reprogramming expert. expert. <laughs> We're all robots and she's going to reprogram us. Um, she is a top 10 ranked podcast host with five years of experience in events production and a volunteer team builder for Tony Robbins or used to be a Tony Robbins. Used a to be, yes. I cannot wait to talk about that. Uh, you reside from, uh, is it uh, Lenexa? Or Overland Park. Overland yeah. Park, that's right. And she drove all the way over to Greenwood, Missouri, to RP Enterprises Global Headquarters. Once again, welcome to the Papa Ron Podcast, Kara Payton. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Uh, we had a really great preliminary discussion. It was it a couple of weeks ago? I think it, it was. Yeah. And uh, I, it was, I love the, uh, here, well, if I'm just being completely honest, it was like, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at could night. Could have been a podcast in itself. Yeah, it could, really could have been. And I didn't, I was feeling guilty because it was so late and I, and I knew that you're an early riser and you got a lot of things to do. And I just did not want to stop talking to you. It was so much fun. And, um, and so we're going to get into a lot of the stuff that, that, uh, that I mentioned here in the intro of this, but um, let's talk about, let's talk about your podcast first, because top 10 ranked podcast, The Happiness Habit. The happiness okay. habit. Mm -hmm. How long have you been doing that? Since November 2020. Wow. Congratulations on that success. What do you think that you, what it is that you have done to make it a top 10 ranked podcast? I don't do the song and dance that's so is this Is what I'm doing a song and dance? No. Okay. It's, it's just <laughs> as far as the subject matter, I think the reason why it took off, well, one, I, I planted it in fertile ground of 2020 when the conversations about anxiety and depression mm -hmm. and mental health were 
peaking, but nobody else was talking. We were talking about the problems, but there wasn't anybody to go, hey, yeah, let's let's bring that into the fold. Let's talk about anxiety. Let's talk about fear. Let's talk about what it means and what it does to our minds and where we get stuck and thought habits and all of the things that people were now coming face to face with mm-hmm. in the privacy of their own four walls. Right. There was nobody really, there was no thing, nothing to RSVP to, to distract us. There was nothing. We had to numb some time us. on our hands, we, didn't we? We had no way to avoid sure. what we were facing, and it was really uncomfortable. And so I kind of just—that was after all of my time with Tony, and I just thought, out of pure curiosity, it was one of those things. I'm like, let's let's just start talking. Let's start teaching. Let's start breaking some of these subjects open and make them make sense in a more granular way, because th- I feel like. There was, you could YouTube a whole bunch of different things, but there wasn't anything to kind of explain why people would get in these stuck places or emotionally, emotional crisis, mental thought loops, all of that. And so it just was really organic. And here we are. I, I didn't ever do the pretty subject and mm-hmm. talked about it in a real way. Authenticity always wins. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that. And that's what we try to do here on this podcast. And and so I'm going to ask the personal question because there would not be a Papa Ron podcast had I not experienced something. Yeah. Uh, I went through something that was dark, um, very dark actually. Mm-hmm. And um, I internalized a lot of those feelings for about two years until I had a panic attack on an airplane that really kind of shook me. And I had to go to the doctor to, because I thought maybe I had something worse like a COVID or cancer or some, you know, like I really thought I was going to get poked and prodded all over the place to find out what was wrong with me. And it just turned out that I had a, a, a chemical imbalance, if you will. And so by opening up to some friends about it, uh, my buddy, and I've told this story several times on this podcast, acted like he was going to hit me overhead with a folding chair, WWE style. And he's like, I've been trying to tell you for three years, you need to do a podcast. And I was so desperate to find some self-worth again and just find something that would inspire me something that would make me feel like i had purpose again that this podcast came to fruition what was it for you that got you from uh, but you were working in that field prior to even doing the podcast so let's back up even further because i definitely want to get to tony but somewhere there was a come to jesus moment oh absolutely and it was for me it was come to jesus question mark (laughs) okay (laughs) because I had been in the church and that was the I was kind of a I had a tumultuous chaotic childhood and it just kind of created a lost product of that I became this very just chaotic human and fast forward to all of the little things that I thought would make my life make sense to me so I thought okay the people that look appear happy they have money so I'm Mm. gonna go chase money Mm. The people that look successful and happy, they, they go get married. They go get married, they have kids. They buy a big house and white picket fence and everything. Mm-hmm. I didn't get the white, the white picket fence, but it was brown. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I did all that. So it was checkbox, 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 checkbox. And I'm, I'm thinking I'm creating something that's going to insulate me from any of the discomfort I felt when I was a kid. Where were, where are you at in your life at this time? Like how old were, were I'm you? I'm 26. Okay. And so are you single then? Are you married or single divorced? Yeah. Okay. And with children, right? Yes. With three amazing boys. And so I walked into my house from either a Bible study or something that was supposed to kind of, you know, fill these gaps. Yeah. And I 
have you ever walked into a building where you're in the wrong place? Like you walk into somewhere and it's the wrong room or it's, like you Oh yeah. And this you're was, a little embarrassed. And you're like, Oh God, yeah, wrong yeah, place. Yeah. Yeah. I did that to my own front door. Oh wow. I walked into the house. I pulled in out of my Mercedes and this giant house that with a mortgage and payments that were astronomical. And I opened the door and I felt this, that unfamiliar, Oh shit. Wrong place. Okay. But then I could see, I'm like, no, I'm not in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. What, what was that? Yeah. Here I am. It's my house. It's my couch. It's my kitchen. It's my, you Everything. know, yeah. but it wasn't, I wasn't in full, my, my body wasn't in recognition okay. in that moment. I was, I felt like a, like I was looking down at some person in a place. It was very removed, very detached. And I kind of panicked in that moment because I, realized in that moment oh my god the check boxes are not working mm. this isn't working i have spent so many years trying to do this and it's not working let and me I, ask let me ask this were you having any kind of like reservations or like hey things i, mean, I don't feel fulfilled prior to that ang- i'm not gonna it's maybe not an exam exam hmm anxiety attack, but it was an anxious moment right so had you had anything or were, were you just feeling like on top of the world up until then I was neither. It was more or less a moment that I still had hope that eventually something was going to click into place. Okay. And so I kind of was gaslighting myself ah. for a really long time that, you know, not yet, but it it's coming. This will mm-hmm. all make sense soon. This will feel okay soon. Sure. And the nagging whisper that um, I was doing a successful job of muting that by like playing static over it. I was making my life as staticky as possible. So that still small whisper says, Hey, you're, you're still really freaking unhappy. You're Mm. still unhealthy. You're still unhealed. Could be at least not heard. And then in that, it was like that moment where I realized all the check, all the boxes were checked. It still wasn't working. There was nothing but silence. And in that silence, I had to actually hear, yeah, this doesn't work. Mm -hmm. This isn't going to work for you. So it was, it was just like, I, at that point I had said a lot of prayers. I was doing all the things to make sure that I was checking the box here and clocking into church and clocking mm-hmm. into the room parents and the PTA and all that. I was, yeah. I had established myself in all other ways. And I had prayed a lot because it was just, you pray the scripture, you do this, you do this mm-hmm. formally. You don't do it with your heart. You do it with your mind. It's an ob- obligation. At that point, I actually audibly said from the heart like god if this is all there is please let me have peace that is mm. all i have been i was so exhausted i was like that is all i've been after this entire time please just give me peace i am exhausted yeah and then i paused and said but if it's not all there is and i'm missing something break me open and show me what i'm missing and okay. i remember specifically saying break me open mm. and then everything Everything exploded. My whole life completely came apart after that. Quickly? Very quickly. Very, very, very quickly. What was the first thing you experienced that that took you on a new trajectory? Well, I had watched Eat, Pray, Love, as cliche and basic as it sounds. I had watched that movie where she goes on a, on a one-year sabbatical. She realized she's not happy in her marriage, and mm-hmm. she goes and, you know, she ends up in Bali. And the movie ended in Bali, so I was like, perfect, sounds great. I Googled, you know, <laughs> stay in Bali for a month or something and found a hostel that you can stay there for a month and you can do these, you can go there as a single, as a couple, as a group, and it's, 
you have your own private room, but the rest of it's shared community and you can travel with total strangers just to go anywhere. I emailed them and said, Hey, give me your rate for a month. I need to, I need to go decompress, decompress in Bali. They responded, Hey, here's our rate for the month, which was amazing. It was, I was like already sold, but they said, we can you tell me what that was? It was $800 for the month Whoa. to stay in Bali for a month. So wow. I was, I was already whole, whole all in. Okay. But they said, we noticed you're a pretty talented photographer. Okay. We don't have a lot of pictures of our, of our resort in mm. Tokyo. Oh, wow. Okay. So if you'd be willing to put off Bali and come to Tokyo, we would comp your stay. It's just like, absolutely. How did you do that with three kids? Well, my, um, my kid's father is also a career artist. Okay. So it was basically just, we knew that we were in kind of a 911 save everything moment where it was just like all hands on deck, whatever we need to do to figure this out. We were in crisis mode essentially. So he's but like, you oh, are divorced at this time, right? Not yet. Oh, not yet. Okay. Not yet. So when you say 911 mode, that is the crisis being saving the marriage? Um, I, not necessarily. I was not thinking that. I think he may have still at that point because it was just such a such a shock to him is like I went he thought that maybe I was going through some sort of phase and that I would kind of come back to center I was having like a a midlife crisis or something and that I would come back to my senses and we're still at 26 right we're still at 26 okay and man (laughs) it was bizarre the timeline of everything the way it worked out because Tony came into the mix at this point. My husband and I at the time are still going, you know, what, what do you need? What is, you know, you know, we're Mm -hmm. both kind of there with the tourniquets and the, Hey, let's, let's figure something out. Yeah. And I was removed. I didn't want to feel removed. I was kind of just, I even had a, a fantasy one time of taking a match, just throwing it in the front yard and walking away. I just thought I just I burn it, burn it all. I don't I care about nothing. I don't want any of it. And I was there. I was that scorched earth with my entire life. I just I sold everything. I didn't want anything to do with anything anymore. I wanted to have to own nothing, to live nowhere. It was very just um, like this deta- full. Just I wanted to shed all of it and very very destructive. Looking back, it's just like there could have been so many other. I guess slower or more inquiring ways to go about that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, what was destructive? The carelessness about it. Give me an example. Um, it was an at all costs, get rid of everything. I like dump it, burn it, sell it, throw it in the driveway. I don't care. I was very, Mm. just get it all away from me. (laughs) And I think that zero to 100. Yeah. Like that. And if I, if I was honest, because my husband and I at the point, at that point, had had so many death by a thousand cuts situations, mm. he was not, I was doing my best to communicate there, there were issues prior to that. And he was just not, he, would, he went through an entire childhood of just trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma. And so my, he didn't know how to deal with a complex marital situation. So to his credit, once he kind of got the clue, oh, wow, this is, this is done in her. She like 
death to this whole thing. He kind of, he clicked on, but it was almost the too little too late. I, I looked at him. There was one time on Valentine's Day when we had, were still living together. It's after I got back from Japan. I remember f- seeing in his face everything that I wanted to see like six months prior to that. And I was so indifferent to his existence mm. and it felt awful. It's like, I am, I, I don't love you. I don't hate you. I don't care. Mm. And I can still recall what that felt like to be so just dead to the situation. And, you know, fast forward now we're he's my 4am phone call. He's my best friend. Um, oh, love so him to cool. pieces, but yeah, I, I love him to pieces as in a different capacity. Yes. You're, yeah. you're still divorced family, and yeah. Yeah. Family, God, love type thing. Like I want, I genuinely want him to be the happiest version of himself. And mm. if I could go back, what I would have done differently as far as the carelessness and what was so destructive about it is I was very, it was very much in like a trauma response, self-preservation. It was at, at the cost of him I, I just, I wanted out no matter how violently I got out. And, and so I know that I caused him pain and harm mm-hmm. in that kind of trauma of just somebody leaving again after a life of whatever he experienced in his childhood of multiple people leaving that were. So there's out. obviously something deep um, and un, uh, well, how am I to say this? There was something deep and confusing and uncertain that you were going through to get to this point you weren't able to identify it right, right away. Right. Right. So how far back does all of this go that ultimately created the problem? Oh gosh. Um, when I found out at 13 that I was adopted. Okay. (laughs) When my father, who I thought was my father told me he wasn't my father and my mother couldn't be in the room. Just to tell you. To tell me because they, I think it, he, he told me later on that it became, it was becoming painful to withhold that from me. And mm. he was kind of feeling like there was some going to be some sort of karmic mm. situation that's come back to bite him. If he didn't, he was respecting his wife, my mother at the time by kind of holding this long secret, but it was almost like he was giving himself emotional rope burn by like holding on to it. It's like, this yeah. is this insidious secret that's going to start it's just going to start bleeding at the seams. I can't, I guess I can understand that. I yeah. Mean, I mean, but did they adopt you at birth? Like, I mean, all you knew is what you knew, right? So, I mean, you had to have been adopted very early. Yes. Yeah, so I was born to my mother who was married to a man, I guess, very, very, very early young in her stages. And I actually, it, what's interesting about this whole th- dynamic is that my adopted father, my biological father and my biological mother, their stories, their timelines, their account of the situation, none of them add up. Okay. And so, so you, so you have a hard time believing any of it. Is that what you're saying? I have a hard time believing any of it. And I also don't know when any of this actually happened. According to one, it was when I was two. According to another, it was when I was seven. There's paperwork that says certain things and none of the stories, all of them leave convenient gaps mm-hmm. and in those gaps displaces the blame. Mm. of each of them yeah so it's that was a web to untangle but and you found this out at 13 yes okay um do you remember how that made you feel or were you i mean at that point in your life you're still um, i mean not to say that you're not emotionally immature but you still are 
right? So do you remember having any sort of struggle with it or? Oh God. Yeah. Oh God. It was, it was until that point I had seen little things that also didn't add up. Like I saw a picture of myself as a newborn with a different last name written on the back. And I just kind of thought, oh, you know, grandma, one of my grandmothers was, you know, not in her right mind when she wrote right, it or, right. you know, little ba- babies. You're just like trying to other. manufacture reasons for exactly. why, why isn't my name on there? And so also there was just this dynamic of I'm a child. I don't question my reality. I trust right. my parents. I trust my environment. There's nothing really, you don't realize you're in a goldfish bowl. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of went on about my life. And then another thing came up and it would be a little bit more substantial. It was my birth certificate and had a different last name on it as well. But it was the decorative birth certificate. Okay. So I thought, okay, I still don't. Maybe mom's maiden name. Because until I was, you know, five, we think our mom's name is mom. Sure, <laughs> so sure, I just sure. I didn't know her real name and I didn't know her unmarried name and I didn't know the maiden names of my grandmother or any so I just still was just allowed to pass under the radar for a really long time. So you are a thirteen year old girl who's just living your life. You're living your best life. There's no reason I mean, you're seeing all these little things, but you're really not giving it a second thought. It sounds right. like you're just living your best life and then just like that. You're a messed up kid. Is that what I'm hearing? My house was really chaotic anyway. Okay. We had, there was just, there was violence in my neighborhood. Okay. And my parents thought pretty, looking back, I I thought it was normal. I thought it was normal to fight like that. And, you know, holes in the walls and Mm. out destruction and leaving the house coming, you know, going. This is the adopted parents. Yes. Obviously. Okay. My, um, my stepdad would leave and go date somebody, move in with somebody, whatever, come back. They would work. It was just gone again, off again. It was, it was awful. I remember even being woken up in the middle of the night by him and says, can I be your daddy again? And you know, how incredibly unhealthy to have done to a child then, but I didn't, I didn't know that was warm. It was something that imprinted me that that's what love is. Mm -hmm. That somebody returns to you that it's like, and so I've repeated that on loop. That's what we do. And Oh my gosh. So from there, it confirmed every fear I'd ever had that I, I knew that I was odd. I knew that I was the only one in the family with green eyes. I knew that I didn't You have other siblings. Yes. And then they all have brown eyes, brown hair. They look exactly like their parents. And I didn't look like anyone. I, I kind of look like my aunt, but I didn't look like anyone in my family. I was taller. I was lankier. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. goofier. And okay. so I already kind of felt like the, an odd duck anyway. Mm-hmm. After this point, I didn't know how to express any of the things that I was going through. The anger, the confusion, the resentment. I was mad at them, but you can't be mad at your parents. You can't express emotion at your parents. I knew that that was not permitted, so I just stuffed, and Mm. it came outwardly with I would self-mutilate. I'd pierce myself. I would tattoo myself. I cut up my own clothing and made clothing and I dyed my hair. I shaved my eyebrows. Like I was, it was just so, I was so confusing Hmm. and that confusion, you could see it. You can, there's a age of old pictures of me where you can just tell, you can see the pain. You can see that happened immediately at 13 or did it come a little bit after? Like, was that more like 16 and kind of towards the high school years? It really kind of started almost immediately after It, it was, it was a slow go at first, as far as outwardly expressing it. 
but the anger had to go somewhere. And so I feel like probably about 14, 14, 14 and a half, 15 years old, it really started to kind of, I looked, I looked troubled. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this ultimately then is just one example of the things that you were dealing with in the life of confusion as you're married to this man. And he's trying to figure out what am I doing wrong or what, what, what's going on with this. And, and then naturally you found some sort of healing um, later. Was there anything else that, I mean, you, you, you kind of made it sound like there were multiple things that, that take, took place. Um, yeah. What else contributed to that? So I, from there, if we, in between being an angry teen and angry, like, I think I would call them goth. I did yeah, that whole goth yeah. thing. Okay. And between there and that, that moment of the existential crisis with my ex-husband, we go to, I've actually, I don't think I've shared this story. So really? that's fun. Um, heard it, heard, heard it here first on the Papa Ron podcast. I've not shared this okay. one. I became pregnant uh, at 18. And the first thing my mom said to me, it used, she used the word whore. Ooh. I don't remember the whole sentence because I just fixated that that was the label yeah. that was being tossed at me. And I had a very, very destructive drug addicted, alcohol addicted boyfriend at the time okay. that I was very, very afraid of, but I had previously broken up with. And I had started dating somebody very healthy to me, but he felt boring mm-hmm. because he was healthy. He was together. He had his own house. He had, his father had a great business. Um, my life was basically going to start working out and here I was going to have a baby. Who's the, who's the, who's the dad? My, so this is the part that I've never told anybody. It was actually Mr. Perfect. Okay. It was his baby. Okay. And the all consuming possessive boyfriend Uh -uh. came in with the whole, can I be your daddy again? Question. And because my imprint told me that the, the chaotic, the, the loss, the desperation type of love was real love. I thought, oh, he's, pr- he's trying to prove himself and make up for it. I didn't know how I was going to let any of the truth come out in the wash that I was pregnant. And it just, because it self-destructed so fast and he ended up, we ended up moving to a nearby Columbia, Missouri. We moved mm-hmm. about an hour, hour and a half away. I wasn't signed on to move out with him or anything like that. I was like, no, I, I think I kind of, I, I think this doesn't feel right. I was kind of charmed by him, but I was still very, very, I knew that I was afraid and intimidated mm-hmm. and didn't really want it, but I didn't know how to say no to it. Yeah. Well, he actually ended up answering the situation for me. He went over to Mr. Boring's house and beat the hell out of him. Wow. So now I'm guilty by association yeah. to this healthy, normal guy who has trying to just start a new relationship with someone. And I was too. How long past the point of you leaving Mr. Perfect and moving on? And does he go after Mr. Perfect? So I broke up with the crazy chaotic one mm-hmm. about 17, 16, 17. Okay. And Mr. Perfect and I started dating a few months after that. And but you went back, to, where I guess I'm going with this, is you went back to the crazy guy. I had not, so Mr. Crazy moved to Columbia. Right. He found out that I was dating somebody else and came back up. Okay. He went out on, he went 
all out on me, just started screaming, attacking, all of this stuff, then went after him, found out who he was and attacked him. So it was relatively quick then. He kind of isolated me to feel like I actually do love you Hmm. and he does not. And I've taken care of him. He's no longer, I've proven that I'm the alpha in this situation. Kind Mm. of almost, it, I felt very, um, looking back on it, how dysfunctional that was because Mm -hmm. I was kind of, I, I was happy, but I was also kind of unnerved by the fact that it felt so anticlimactic. It was healthy love and healthy love when you're used to chaos feels very just stable. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was still trying to explore it and figure it out, but the it basically got answered for me. He said, you know, I've I've cut off this, I've tied up this loose end for mm-hmm. you. Now we're now we're you're coming back with me. Okay. So I moved to Columbia and I now have this this baby that's not quite showing yet. And I have to basically kind of figure out like kind of scared for my not my life, I would say. I was never scared for my life. I was afraid of the hurricane that he would become if he found out that I was pregnant with somebody else's baby. Mm. So I kind of needed to fudge the situation long enough, hide that I was pregnant so that mm-hmm. it might look like we had created a baby. Mm-hmm. And that, that ended up being the situation. There was a right time to, there'd been enough time and enough gap that it was time to say, I'm pregnant. And we went the whole nine yards until about 14 weeks along. The stress and the chaos was just, he went back. I mean, he's, he never changed. It's just, it Mm -hmm. resumed life as normal. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night having contractions and went to the bathroom, blood everywhere. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm in labor. And I had a miscarriage and it was like, as sad as it was, it was also, there was some small part of me that was going, thank God. Thank God. Mm-hmm. And I was able to leave because I, I just basically was like, I'm going to use this miscarriage to kind of overlap the entire top of my need to just get the hell away from this human. So, so he never did find out it was somebody else's baby. No. Okay. No. Did you ever have any encounter with Mr. Perfect? We'll call him that since you called him that. Um, after that is maybe an opportunity to feel remorse. Cause you kind of acted like, or I'm, I'm not saying you acted like I felt remorse from you mm-hmm. when you were explaining the situation. Have you guys ever reconnected after all of that drama? No. Um, I, years later, there was a mutual friend party where I was able to kind of scratch the surface of the situation I was in a little mm-hmm. bit and kind of explain like, hey, it was kind of very domineering, threatening. I was worried about mm-hmm. violence. He had already proven that he was willing to be violent with you. Um, and I kind of, and it was just very, very passive. I kind of broad brush stroked it, touched the surface of everything, but I still felt a great deal of shame for because he was so good and I viewed myself very, very bad at then. Mm. I was not worth good, healthy love. I was still very, very unworthy in general. Right. And I didn't want to get him, if I use the language that I used then, I didn't want to get him dirty with mm. any of my toxic stuff. Yep. So he went on to go get married and have the two and a half kids, the white picket fence, and he lives the life that with a woman who's 
beautiful. Mm-hmm. They, they seem to have just like a very, very picture perfect life and exactly what I did not want to interrupt for him. So, yeah. okay. All right. So we find out that you're adopted at 13 or you do, and that's rattles your entire world. And then you get into basically a toxic, abusive relationship at a uh, age of between 16 and 18. It sounds like, sounds like you get out of that maybe around 18 or was it go right back into another one? Okay. Well, tell us. (laughs) (laughs) So in Columbia, after I found out about, I, I moved, but I, didn't really need to, I didn't want to go home. There wasn't anything for me to go back home to. So and I home's stayed. back here in Kansas city. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I moved in Columbia somewhere, befriended a few girls from, um, sorority in by Mizzou. They were all going to Mizzou and just found my way to have some friends and create a life, uh, started a, a great career. And one of my girlfriends called me and she said, you seem like the spontaneous type. I'm thinking of going to South Florida to live in South beach for six months. My friend is leaving for Amsterdam and needs his house watched. So I took it. I took the opportunity. Was this friend, this is, this is a female friend. Yes. Okay. Good. Toxic. Like what, what would you, what would Good, you say? But I was toxic. I oh, got it. Okay. And so I was still very much just wanting to escape, escape my life, escape claw through the mm-hmm. whatever I was used to and find something else. I was still very much in a desperate self-exploration process. So I, Let me ask something real quick. Sorry to interrupt, but you were talking about the the, the previous boyfriend, the abusive one, um, drug and alcohol abuse. Mm-hmm. I think you hit on that. Did you have any being in that environment? Were you struggling with any of that? No, because I saw what it was doing to him and I was terrified. It To do drugs, I'm actually grateful for the type of person he was because I never wanted anything to do with him. I was mm-hmm. just so not, I I would see how it, what it would do to him. And I would see how it would, I'd have to pick him up and he would be completely out of his mind, high hallucinating, whatever. And I'd have to go clean up his mess. So I just, it never appealed to me. And so drugs and alcohol were never really, they didn't really come into the equation, thankfully. Good. All right. Yeah. So what made you toxic then when you went to Florida? So I, I had a belief system that I would kind of have to fake my way through everything. Um, that everybody else was better than me, more worth it than me, more of a human than I was. Cause they were, I was now the adopted child. It acted like a less than person and everybody else I viewed as a biological child or a full worth, full value human. And so with everything, I thought, you know, here's the gap between me and a friend, me and a boyfriend, me and a coworker, me and a client or whatever. And I'm going to have to work to earn it, work to prove my value, work to close the gap, people please, chase approval, all of that in order to be equal. Mm-hmm. And it was a constantly, it was a horizon that was constantly receding. I would have to do more and do more. So I, I lied a lot. I was a compulsive liar trying to, you know, paint my life like it was better than it was, covering real truth. The self-abandonment was my favorite poison. And this was no different. I, I was telling her, you know, I'll, go get a job. We'll, we'll do this. Great. I'll, I'll, we'll share expenses. Mm-hmm. It'll be super fantastic. And I wove this incredible tale that I was the victim, constant victim. I never ended up paying her any money. I stayed in this fantastic South Florida condo for such a long time and never paid a dime, never really 
initiated myself into anything like a job would have been fantastic then and just did the odds and ends to kind of survive and if I did work I blew the money the next day and there was a lot to be made down there sure and then I came after being homesick and kind of getting understanding that my my web was being unraveled she was kind of seeing through that this yeah is just did a that pattern. tarnish the relationship it did I I went super super destructive on everything and every time somebody kind of could see through me I'm like oh crap <laughs> time to <laughs> exit stage left yep. and went back home fell into the arms of probably the most volatile destructive abusive relationship that I can recall mm. ever mm. and um that's it was back home and then I got had it ended up having my first child with him unfortunately okay, okay. was this somebody that you knew <clears throat> had met from the past or had some sort was that I guess was it a guy from the same circle that you came from with the previous boyfriend that was abusive how did you come cross no. paths with this guy no it was a different different magnet different time but okay. he was somebody that I had my eye on who worked at the mall he was super Super, I guess, desirable at the time. Kind of the skater. He was hot. Yeah, skater <laughs> type. And back then, my my attractive radar was very, very skewed. Okay. And he just looked rebellious and wild. And so I was I was feeling that same wild chaos. And so like attracts mm -hmm. like. So yeah. we ended up um, dating, pregnant. He was never in the picture. Actually, my, my cousin and a group of his friends, there's like six of them, knocked on his door and basically hmm. scared the scared the honest out of him and said, you make an honest father out of this situation or we'll be back. Yeah. And so he was in the picture for a little while, but it didn't sustain. And I raised my oldest by myself until my ex-husband came into the view. You're how old then? At this point, I'm 21. Okay. Yeah. When did you get married? How old were you then? I was 2012, so that would have been 50, no, I'm terrible at math, 2012 is when we got married. Okay. But we met in 2012. I guess what I'm trying to say is what, what's the timeline from when um, you, the, the father of your oldest is no longer in the picture, and then, uh, let me ask it this way, how old is your oldest when you meet the, your, your soon-to-be husband? Two years. Okay. Yeah. So you're doing solo parenting- and basically just doing your best for two years because there's probably not a lot of dating going on during oh, that time. God, right. No, at this point <laughs> I'm trying to raise the, right. raise my son. And it, there was, there were months where I was, because there was no help and I'm supporting mm -hmm. myself back then. You didn't, you couldn't make anything fast food restaurant salary or what I was working at Chipotle. You only made $10 an hour. And, um, I had to choose whether or not to buy us groceries one month or keep the lights on. So I fed us dinner and we slept in a dark room. Where I'm ultimately going with that is that's a life altering moment. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so you naturally live this toxic, rebellious lifestyle. Rebellion is kind of what you're attracted to. You have this child. Your world is now completely sh shaken. Um, a lot for the good, I would think. I mean, naturally, you're, you, I guess I'm putting words in your mouth. You can tell me what, how your life changed after having that baby. Because ultimately I want to see, was there any self-therapy that took place then there to where you no longer wanted to pursue that sort of toxic lifestyle or that particular sort of man 
to where then this guy who comes into your life, who then becomes your husband, is he the rebellious type? You mentioned him as being kind of an artist. Yeah. Um, so is he, is he a, a different personality than what you were used to? Yes. Very much more stable, more loyal. He mm-hmm. was looking for stability. He was looking for a family, but he had been traumatized so many times that it, it became then an inability to have emotion. Mm. He was stoic, emotionless, and couldn't feel because everything that he had been through was just, he just needed to clip that part of him off that he could not feel. Because I feel like what I know of him was that if he went there and he overturned those stones, it was going to be a labyrinth that he would never come back out of. I think he feared that to feel meant to get lost in it. So we, um, so let's back up just a moment. So during those two years, was that a life changing moment for you that you maybe were awaken to be like, that's, I've been going down this road for a long time. I'm going to choose a different path. It was my son, honestly. Right. Because giving birth to him and holding this human, everything that was important in my life prior to that was no longer important. My world became so much bigger Mm -hmm. and it, it was me at the center of everything. Everything Mm -hmm. was self-referenced. And then after he was born, it was there's a greater good. There's a bigger picture to always consider. And Mm -hmm. it's, I've never had a bigger picture or an eye on the, the, instead of instant gratification, it was what can be more prudent. There's, there's what's right and what wrong. Even Jordan Peterson talks about this. Mm -hmm. We have the black and white of what's right and wrong. And then the gray area of what's prudent, which usually falls behind instead of what's right, what can be considered acceptable. There's an air of caution behind that line. That is what is actually prudent to the human, what is actually good for and Mm -hmm. supports and the most wise thing to do, which is usually err on the side of caution of that. So he really helped me to grow up very, very quickly, but in the most gentle of ways, there was just something about his watching him grow up and being able to almost redo my own life. I wanted him to have better of everything. It's really crazy how um, uh, resilient children are and how much grace they give at that age because they just haven't experienced enough life, right? Yeah. And so I can see where that would have been therapeutic for you, you know, because you weren't feeling that from anybody else that was close to you in your life, including your family. Right. Your wife or your mom called you a whore, right? Which takes me to the next question. Were you able to rekindle a relationship with those parents? My relationship these days with my parents has a lot of, it is functional, but it has a lot of, a lot of two by fours and caution tape and things that Mm. kind of block off Mm -hmm. certain parts of myself Mm -hmm. that I will not permit just kind of keeping them at arm's length type yeah, of situation. It's the yo-yo game. I'm playing mm. a game of yo-yo where I'm consistently the yo-yo and I've decided just even the good times and the good things that would happen, it was bait to mm-hmm. get you wrapped back into the whole psychotic deficit of constant chasing. I was just, the inner, my inner child was just exhausted. I remember feeling that one time where I could un, it was undeniable that this kid in me is going like, I'm so tired. Mm-hmm. And I finally just turned to her one day and was like, you know what? 
I'm going to actually advocate for you. We're good. Stop running. You don't have to run ever again. You're good enough as you are. I think I'm going to just choose you myself and then to hell with them and their Mm -hmm. opinion and their constant ever-changing target of what I needed to be, who I needed to be to make them happy. It was never, I was never going to avoid criticism. It was a landmine where they are an inch apart and I had to sprint for 37 years Mm. to not hit any of them. And I finally was just like, you know what? Fuck it. Blow the Mm -hmm. whole thing up. If Mm -hmm. I, I've got your back. Mm -hmm. And when I started like taking my own inner child and putting on her her on my lap, just like, no, me and this girl, we're tight. Okay. And (laughs) this is this to to have her in my life and her to feel safe. Mm -hmm. She needs a really wide berth of where you can come into that world. Yeah. You were able to get past the, um, <clears throat> how am I going to say this? The, the uh, concern for their acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care if they accept me. Yeah. So is, have we got through most of the trauma then before you get married? Or is there any more trauma then before you get divorced? <sighs> You have, yeah, the, you have the look on your face like there is, but I'm not sure if I want to talk about pieces, it. It's smaller pieces. It's smaller pieces of things that were just very hard to move into the identity of what I was becoming because I wasn't who I wanted to be, but I wasn't this lost, fragmented, crazy person anymore. And mm-hmm. so I kind of had to be like, well, I kept magnetizing back to old ways and then being disgusted and repulsed by it and then going back mm. to a better self. So it was like this volleying game for a long time. And I remembered in that moment, it's the only one that I need to concern myself with again was my son. Cause mm. that night that when the power, when I knew the power was going off, there wasn't mm. anything I could do because yeah. it was above 32 degrees and it was so past due because his father had bolted and I was giving him money to pay an electric bill. He was never doing it. I didn't know that. And now it was like 1200 to $1,300 and back. Mm. And because it was so cold, they couldn't turn it off. But this month, they could turn it off because it was, it was coming on spring. And I knew that night, you know, I was too prideful yeah. to ask for any help or do anything. So I was like, we're going to, I had a very important decision to make. We're going to make this fun. And gathered the blankets and made a pillow fort and tried to keep us as warm as possible and figure out how I'm going to make this. We're going to camp out tonight. And... I knew the colder weather was coming. So how I thought old it was, was he then? He was, he was mm, just 18 months ish, a little over 18 oh, months. Man. And mm. no, he, he must've been closer to two. Cause he said we were, we were hanging out. We were under the covers and it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was decent. It was probably only got to like 50, 55 in the house. So it was, it was decent. It was chilly, but yeah. with enough clothing on enough blankets on, it was fine. Body he, heat. Yes. And he <laughs> looked at me and he goes, you're the best mom ever. Oh, when you're feeling like the worst mom ever. Yes. And I'm sitting here going, I barely fed you <laughs> so that I could. And we still lost. Like I still failed. I failed to keep the lights on for you. But here I am, the best mom ever in your eyes. And mm. it just. See that grace that kids give. Exactly. And then that moment was one of the first moments I realized that like life is what means what what you make it mean yeah it's not what happens because yeah. here's this kid he's, he's just thinking mom's having fun turned all the lights mm-hmm. off to have a good time and yeah. he thinks i'm making it an adventure so i was wow. like why couldn't this be an adventure to me too he thinks of it that way 
All right, we're going to take a little break here, and then we're going to dive deeper into your story. Naturally, we want to hear a little bit more about what's going on with this Tony Robbins thing and how you got connected there. And I want to get into, I mean, you get pregnant at 18, so you probably don't have much post-high school uh, education, but you have ultimately made a very successful life for yourself, right? So I want to figure out how does that happen? That's all coming up next with Kara Payton on the Papa Ron Podcast. You're listening to the Papa Ron Podcast. To contact us with questions, comments, or interest in sponsoring the show, find us online at paparonradio.com. Now back to the show. Here again are your hosts, Ronnie Phillips and Jillian Gregg. Papa Ron Podcast brought to you by Brown Piercy Cattle Company. For years, they've been breeding registered Angus cattle for generations with one thought in mind, quality beef for consumers. Their goal is to deliver prime grade, excuse me, prime graded beef directly to customers' homes more affordably than you can purchase them at the store. Better beef, conveniently delivered at a lower price than the grocery store. Find them online at brownpiercycattle.com. We are with Kara Payton. And she's got an incredible story. I'm so impressed with her career and what she's done. And I want to kind of dive into that before we get into the uh, how in the world you cross paths with Tony Robbins. So um, you're not making any money. You're working at uh, Chipotle, I think you said, or wherever it is that you can you know, work to, to make a few bucks to keep the, the lights on and the heat on. Um, what did you end up going to college then later or or do you have just a, a doctorate degree in life? um well fortunately having you know a dad military family upbringing you you had old-fashioned values and so you you shook people's hands you looked Mm -hmm. them in the eyes relationships you just had a knowing of of life you had to get life very Mm -hmm. very quickly and with me with my life being what it was I had to learn to to spring on my feet and be ready for action. You kind mm-hmm. of had to, tra- unfortunately, the the benefit of trauma is that you are always hypervigilant. You're looking, you're able to observe micro expressions, you know how to mirror people in the room. And so you can very quickly advance yourself because people just think there's something about you that's super special. It's like, yeah, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm freaking traumatized. So <laughs> I know how to make you think I'm, I know how to make you approve of me, essentially. Yeah. I know how to get acceptance and measure, I, I could go into any room, find and identify who in the room is the most important, the most influential, the most impactful, and the person that I am going to, I, I just knew how to, how to do that. So that translated into, I didn't just get the job at Chipotle. I got hired on the spot to run the store oh, that day. So it was okay. just that you do the hand, chat and handshake. No experience. No, none whatsoever. And that so did, was there a lot of lying or manipulating to be over to present yourself as overqualified? No, only overpromising. Okay. I knew how to over I knew how to overpromise, but then deliver it. Okay, because I could. As I long as you to, could deliver it, that's <laughs> the impressive part. Like you have no idea. You've never worked in a restaurant before, and no. you're going to manage the store. You're going to run it. Yeah, I had to learn how to speak Spanish. Like, and I was just like, I'll, I'll, wow. I'll do it. Wow, just give me the opportunity, and I'll do it. It was I wanted to make people proud. Came from that the couldn't have come without failures, though. I mean, you don't yeah. just go in there and master it. Like you, you, and look, people say success or failing is a prerequisite to success, right? Yeah, of course. My friend Stephen McBee, who's been on this podcast, says that. Um, so, did you have moments to where then your job was potentially in question because you weren't delivering on what you said you could do in the time of which you could do it? No, I would basically just for I was just like I would put my nose to the grindstone and my feet to the fire every single time that if, if I even thought 
that something was coming, a deadline was coming too close, an expectation was being met, I would basically abuse myself to go then over deliver. And then, yeah, so it was just, I found a way to compensate for any of the things that, because Napoleon Hill also says that failure is not failure until observed. And I just refused to admit defeat, refused to admit failure. Okay. That, that must've manifested somewhere though, because it sounds like you didn't have a lot of self-confidence at a certain, you know, in your teens, Mm -hmm. right? You're kind of um, expressing yourself through crazy, you know, what'd you call it? Like piercings and, and goth like mentality and you're in an abusive relationship and these alpha personalities, where did this type a personality then come mm-hmm. from? Because you didn't always have it. Did you? Uh, no. And there was a conversation with my grandparents that started that actually. Oh, okay. And, and, and where are we at in life when that happens? Um, I think I'm 23, 24. Okay. Uh, maybe even 22 It's somewhere still very, very early twenties because I had had the whole victim mentality and who could be the bigger, I could be the most bloody story, the most awful victim of, of any situation. That was kind of like my, my drug then. But after this conversation, it became, I'm going to be a victor. I no longer have any desire to be a victim because my, I went to my grandparents' house and asked them for kind of a handout a little bit. It was like, I'm, my child's uh, father and I had split to the point it was like the the electric bill not being able to be paid and all this stuff and trying to get out of this mess I needed a car and so I asked them to kind of either co-sign or I asked them for a little bit of money I'm not really sure and they gave the very very tough love and I remember my grandfather kind of seemed pained to say it but he said I I can't because I don't see great things coming out of you. I just, I can't sign my name to that. Hmm. And so. Did you, did you get it? What he was trying to do at the time or were you pissed? I was pissed. Of course you were. At the time. I was very vengeful and I left there with the, I'm going to prove you wrong. And even though. That's what he wanted you to do. Yes. Even though it was very, it was probably the most risky way to get somebody on track, it, it worked. I, I became just fervent. I will never be viewed like that by anybody. Mm. You don't think I'm going to have great things. It, it kind of broke through the delusion that I told myself I was just going to be able to maintain this BS path of, I was bullshitting myself mm. that I was, that I was going to keep able <clears throat> to do the same thing over and over. And that I was going to turn into something great. It's like, no, at this level, you're going to end up shuffling in a bathrobe on the streets. Like you're not going to go anywhere. He's right. Mm -hmm. And there was some part of that that knew he was right. That I just, I was so like, no, I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm going to prove him wrong. And I'm going to prove me wrong. And I, I got after it and I became an entrepreneur immediately after. So, um, I struggle with using the word. I think we talked about this when we had our preliminary zoom call. Um, I struggle with the term entrepreneur and it's my own personal problem. And you being a personal development person, you can probably give <laughs> yes, me some therapy. Life I, here have, I have a problem with a the podcast. term life coach. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, because I think that there's, I think the term is used loosely in society and you know, like, and it's not fair for me to say that, you know, the stigma must be um, a millionaire earner to be an entrepreneur. I'm not insinuating that. But I am somewhere above selling Tupperware though. 
Yes. Yes. Like, Multi-level marketing doesn't If count, you are living month to month, you're not in, I, sorry, I'm just going to say it. You're not an entrepreneur if you're living month to month. So I also know that in the early stages of being an aspiring entrepreneur, you're dabbling because I did it. You're dabbling and you might be doing network marketing, selling Tupperware. Um, you might be doing all these other side hustles. You're not working for anybody but you, but you, but you have to be, and you're doing things sometimes that are humbling and not necessarily what you want people to know that you're doing. And I'm not suggesting like selling drugs or anything like that, but did you ever do anything that where it was like, you know what, I'm, this is not who I am. This is not what I want to do for the rest of my life, but this is what I got to do as an aspiring entrepreneur, entrepreneur to get where I want to be ultimately. And what, did, if so, what were some of those careers that or jobs that you did? So prior to being an entrepreneur, I wanted I knew the restaurant industry wasn't for me. And so I kind of still passed through other management opportunities. And I remember another straw, the thing, I didn't immediately come become an entrepreneur after that conversation. I just knew that I wanted to do something different. Mm -hmm. I needed to change the plan. Mm -hmm. I still ended up working for somebody else until another beautiful invitation to completely exit and, and re-scrap everything. I found out my son was being abused in his daycare center. Oh my yeah. How do you find that out? I walked in to the house to find one kid, a baby there. And I won't share names because like, yeah, this doesn't was, matter. <laughs> um, there was a baby there that had been clearly laying there all day. His face was covered in his own vomit Oh, because he would, he was, you know, when babies are like tummy time type thing where they're on their stomach. Mm -hmm. He'd clearly been crying. He would throw up. He'd kind of fall asleep and he'd pick his head back up and it was like dried on his face and some of it was still wet, but he was just like, he was cut. His whole outfit was completely soaked in feces and urine. So just been like sitting there and my son hadn't been like, this was nine hours later. My son hadn't even been removed from his car seat. He was starving. He was soaked in his own urine all the way up to his ears. Shit everywhere. And I, I'm, I'm thinking, because this woman was significantly overweight, I'm thinking they're, she's dead. So my initial thing is I walked into this house and see these babies that are completely, they're starving, they're screaming, this house is chaos. I'm thinking, I'm going to find a dead body. Mm-mm. No, she's downstairs on the computer playing uh, solitaire. And I just was like, I could have, anybody could have walked in and taken these children. She didn't even know I was there. She was completely engaged in her. She didn't see me. I went down, I looked at her and I was just like completely shocked. Just, I was in, that was, this, I didn't realize that my freeze response was something I went to often until that moment. Cause I couldn't even say anything. I was so just disgusted that I, I called for somebody to come get the other boy I just called 911, like on my way out the door. I picked up my kid just straight out of the car seat. I didn't even change anything. Just grabbed the bottle, um, the diaper bag, the car seat, and I just left. And I called 911 about child neglect in the house, and I just left. It was like throw a match, burn it all. I made sure that the the little one upstairs was not screaming as I left, and the other one. And I, I never went back, and I was like, "There's, I will never spend, let my kid spend 12 hours a day with a total stranger and one that doesn't care about him ever again. 
Like yeah. it just was never like never again will I ever he will come with me no matter what I do. That became like a new must is I will not do anything in my life, anything in my career, wherever, whatever path I'm meant for, he has to come with me or it's no deal. I can't begin to tell you the rate of which my heart is beating right now. And well, you have babies. <clears throat> the level of pissed off and rage that I feel about stuff like that. Like I don't have, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I just don't have any tolerance for yeah. it, which nobody should, in my opinion. How in the hell did you keep it together? Like, uh, I, I don't, I, I may have, would have gone to jail. That's, I've, that's just, I don't think I kept it my together. Child. I think I was so in shock Yeah. that to see my son in that state and to see another baby in that state and just, mm-hmm. these are big. All day, mm. not even so much as a, like he still had the seatbelt imprints in him. That's all oh, see that. <laughs> <laughs> What's, uh, so after calling 911, there was no follow-up. I mean, there was no prosecuting attorney where you would have to go testify. I mean, you, you called 911 and you were rid of that situation for good. I never looked back. I didn't, I was just like, there is some significant child abuse going on. I gave him the address. Yeah. Um, I gave him the address and I hung up. Like I've taken my child from the situation, but there's another child And you there. explained to them that this was your child's daycare. Yeah. yeah. Um, and never heard anything after that. Never. Okay. So that's. Like to explain how traumatized, I, like I don't even remember her name. <clears throat> Got it. <laughs> so one of the things that I learned in, in doing personal development and in effort to become an aspiring entrepreneur was to know your why. Right. And so I think that you have kind of touched on, I'm sure you, and it's okay to have multiple whys, in my opinion. In this particular case, you had something so deep and, and raw mm-hmm. an experience that, that happened to you that you didn't want to position yourself to have to rely on daycare, maybe cheap daycare or daycare of that capacity mm-hmm. because you experienced that. And the only way to get out of that is put yourself in a better financial situation. Yeah, it became at all costs because you... I guess I just realized that I would rather be homeless. I would rather be down and out. Mm -hmm. I would rather have nowhere to nothing else before I would allow that to happen. It's like on over my dead body. Will he? And so it's like you, you put the line in the sand of the standard of like, that becomes the absolute, not even last resort. It will never happen again. Nobody will ever take care of him. So since then you have taken care of all of your kids. Really? No daycare for any of them, not until they were. I mean, surely school. you've had to lean on friends or family or people that you know, love and trust to watch your kids at some point so that you can break away and travel or, I mean, go to Japan or come do a podcast with me in the middle of the day. Um, is, is that fair to say? There are about <clears throat> 10 instances where the gaps were not covered by myself or my ex-husband where his mom or my father or my sister, somebody okay. that comes into the mix. But sure. yeah, very, very few occasions. So then to become an aspiring entrepreneur, you've got to have a passion for something. You're something that you have to pursue, or did you? Or was it just like, hey, I'm going to get involved in, say, a network marketing opportunity? Um, I know that photography was something that you were doing, or maybe still be doing. We can touch on that. But what, 
what, what was the next step then? What did you pursue? So at first, you know, I didn't have any discernible wants. I was told that I was going to be a starving artist if I pursued that. So art never even, I didn't have any at first was just like, that's not going to be a, a path for me. Okay. Photography included in that. I failed photography in high school and here oh, I am 20, okay. 20 years later, I'm a photographer. Got it. So I did not have any plan. I just had at, at this point, the, de the desire to not have my son in another daycare center, but knowing that I still had to make money fueled, it could have fueled, I could have been a janitor at that point, but because it was so propelled forward by the desire never to see him in, in somebody else's, on, under somebody else's wings anymore, okay. it would have fueled anything. I could have, I could have sold popsicles door to door and it would have been, mm. it would have been Is successful. there anything that you wouldn't have done? I mean, were, were you at a, let's see, and I, um, I, was, was there any, and I'm, the reason I'm asking is because I've heard documentaries or stuff like this where people are telling a story similar to yours, but they go yeah. to stripping or right. prostitution or, and I'm not asking if you did any of that, but were there ever areas of which that you went that were below moral? No. That's good. I just knew that whatever I was going to do, I wasn't going to sell my soul to do it. And selling your soul, you know, some people do strip or prostitute. Mm -hmm. Don't think that it's any cost to their, you know, more inherent being. Uh, that never came into the equation, fortunately. But, yeah. you know. What I, did you end up doing then? I went into photography right after that and okay. it, I stumbled upon it. So did you just buy a camera and then present an image that you're a professional photographer and start taking pictures or did you put yourself in some sort of course or school or YouTube tutorials? <laughs> what, what was it that you did that if you failed it in high school, you had to kind of start over again, it sounds like. Well, I had, I failed photography in high school because he was a cheerleading coach and he hated that I broke the rules all the time. He wanted a, an assignment on perspective and I would, I'd give him one, but it was more of a conceptual perspective, not a literal. Gotcha. And he hated me for it. Because <laughs> so, you were the rebellious type. So, and I stumbled into photography even more accidental than that. I had a camera and just started spending time documenting this time alone. Because with him there, I was aware that like this was going to be a temporary thing with him and I. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even, I didn't even have a clue that that was going to end up being the thing. So we just, we just played and had fun. And I took a picture of him goofing around with a Starbucks cup and my girlfriend who was visiting at the time, she said, why don't you do something like that? Mm -hmm. And it, it had never dawned on me because I had blocked it. I blocked that whole idea out of my head that it would have anything to do with art or photography, especially mm -hmm. photography. So I took a picture of her and her son family photos and then it became her mother saw oh those are really good will you do some extended family photos mm -hmm. and then a mutual friend word of mouth yes it was just I'm getting married I was like I'll do it I'll do it for 500 bucks and it was just from there on I, I literally would sit in coffee shops and think contract terms like what what would be ways that you could possibly screw me over let's get words mm -hmm. of, to do that what be ways that i could possibly screw you over let's get words to that and literally mm -hmm. took a bride and formed my first contract with her over coffee my dad there her dad there trying to like okay really your dad there too huh? yeah yeah so obviously then things were good with your dad they, they were always off and on so okay. all right was, so they were on at that moment yes 
Where, because I'm into cinematography and photography, where did it take a lot of time for you then to get adapted? And, and really, anybody listening to this, if you're not into photography, you're not going to understand anywhere <laughs> I'm going with this. But were you running anything? Were you running everything in, in auto settings? Or yes. were you, because that's the, I mean, that's the easy way I to do it. I would play right? in my own time. But when it came to go time, I didn't want to screw anything up. So I did auto for when I actually had a client in front of me. Mm-hmm. But as far as the experimental stuff and breaking the rules and kind of pushing the boundaries of where I actually wanted to see it go as an art form. Cause at mm-hmm. first it was just literal, take a picture of the situation, auto settings, mm-hmm. do some kind of, I don't know, song and dance with the color and all that. And then hand it back to them, bump right. the contrast, bump the saturation. That was really so kind was of every, everything in, in uh, post that you were like manipulating the picture. Yeah. And then <clears throat> beyond that, it, it became an art form years and years later i was like i could actually if i'm going to do this mm-hmm. i could actually make a name for myself i sure. would see these award-winning photographers and i actually became very curious i was like this could hmm, okay if i'm going to do this you became I'm, passionate about it so you dove into it and you yes, learned more okay yes and i was like i could actually i could actually have fun doing this as well so for those listening who aren't familiar with photography when we talk about auto settings there's basically four major components to a camera you have your white balance you have your iso you have or some people call it gain you have your shutter speed your f-stop you know your shutter speed is obviously how quick the iris is opening and shutting so if you're have filming a vehicle driving down the road you're gonna have a really high shutter speed because then you want to be able to capture that without it being blurry but in the f-stop sacrifices one sacrifices the other because mm-hmm. your f-stop is your um how far your depth of field yeah yeah your depth of field so anyway if you put your camera in auto settings it does all of that for you mm-hmm. but it doesn't allow you to have as deep of uh creativity yeah. you know if you understand the, the the manual settings which it sounds like you now do so that's very interesting and so one thing leads to another and you are now a successful photographer it sounds like yes i fell in love with it i still love it even though i've moved on to the coaching the speaking the writing and all of that it's it's still something that because i can just play and have fun with mm-hmm. people I just, I love it. I think I'll probably always do it. Was it, and we kind of talked about um, the market and, and everything that happens with the, the world of photographers. Was it your, was it, let me, I'm trying to find the right way to phrase this question and then you can tell me or answer the question however you like, but was it the market that adjusted your trajectory in life or was it your newfound passion for the next step in life that allowed you to remove yourself as as much as you were in the photo- in the world of photography? A little bit of both. There was always this, you know, I would come up to a point of sati- satiation where I would be really comfortable with where I was and I would find myself kind of disillusioned by it and then I would leave it for a time or put it down and do other things and I realized, no, I, I, I think I just needed a break and I'll pick it back up and I would tray you know just like tear off on a new angle of how to do things or a new subject matter I would do predominantly newborns or predominantly couples or predominantly Mm -hmm. weddings and I would find myself just I so I I eventually learned that when I start to get a little bit bored I'll just switch subjects I'll just go from maternity and newborn to Mm. couples boudoir um 
elopements, travel, destination photography. And then now with this new thing, I've been adding more video components to everything. So they have yeah. a, they have a family session, like a gallery there just of photos, but then they have a, a an old school family film to go with it to kind of pair because oh, we're wow. in a world of video now too. For so sure. It, um, it's always been something that lit me on fire as far as different seasons. I mean, I know that with my political views, 2020, they completely lit fire to all of the momentum I had. I was, it was no big deal for me to bring in well into the five figures every single month. And then right, you know, 2020 pandemic, there was people go left and people go right. And in my industry, I had no idea that politics was so important. So I just very started, started doing my research and found into some fascinating Fascinating facts that I thought would be interesting to say as far as identity politics goes and media propaganda. And I started sharing about that and realized those are the wrong words. And now I'm off of preferred vendor lists. I was blacklisted. I was, I would, people would attack my Google reviews to basically rank my business like as low as you could. And um, my business uh, plummeted in 2020. I had clients who had paid deposits saying, keep it. I don't want to work with a, I don't want to work with a right winger. And mm. I had people to basically go scorched earth on me. And so rebuild after 2020 all over again. Wow. <laughs> now, obviously in today's society, that isn't the first time we've heard a story similar to that, but let's dive in a little deeper to that, I guess, because I'm, I'm interested. You, you have made a significant name for yourself as one of the premier photographers in Kansas city in those categories that you mentioned, weddings obviously being one of them, if not the biggest. What was it that, was it because that during the pandemic and there we have time on our hands and you're probably not taking a lot of pictures or doing a lot of weddings during that time, right? And so you're finding yourself getting um, intrigued by what is this pandemic and what started it and what's going on. I guess, let me back up. Have you always been a political person or was it that you got more interested because of the pandemic? And then you felt, you felt like you needed to voice your opinion. And I'm guessing you did this on social media or was there other platforms of which you were voicing your, your opinion? Well, the first thing to mention is I was zero political affiliation. I thought they were all just idiots strangling themselves in monkey suits to try and look important. I had no interest in voting. I had no, I think I voted one time when I was 18 because of that whole like voter die campaign that was going on that Puff Daddy was, was heading off. And I just, so yeah, I joined in and then it it just kind of seemed. (laughs) She called him Puff Daddy. It's been P Diddy. Now is is it just Sean Combs? Maybe that's just what he went by at the time. Yeah. Um, What year would that have been? 18. So you graduated in what year? How old are 2004. you? 2004. So that was 2004, 2004 election. I voted then and then I never, I didn't vote again now. until 2020. Really? I mean, yeah. it was, I just, I did not see any point. I was definitely mm-hmm. one of those that said, what's another vote? I don't even know what I'm voting for. You know, none of this seems to be important to us or right. it, I was very, very <clears throat> ignorant in that regard. So I got 2004. That's like a George, George, uh, junior, uh, was that George and, uh, Al Gore? Was that during that election that you voted? I'm just, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. It's just, I'm thinking 2004. What was, who, 
Or was it Car- Car- um, Carrie? I think it was Carrie. Yeah, it probably was. Yeah. I okay. Think it was that election. That guy sounds, he sounds more familiar than that. Anyway, so I digress. Sorry, that is a big time sidetrack. Um, <laughs> so you started to voice your opinion. No, I actually didn't even think that I was doing anything wrong. I okay. was, everybody, there were so many headlines bashing people left or like viscerally disgusted headlines about Mm -hmm. just attacking people's personal integrity, like attacking people personally. And I actually was just kind of like, what is the deal with this politics thing? Yeah. And specifically when it came to propagandist type of, it just, it felt disingenuous. So I was like, let's, let's dive in and see what this stuff is all about. Like how the judicial, the judicial system, how the, you know, branch of government is formed. I just, I really kind of started getting curious and we didn't have any other time on our hands. We didn't right, have time to right, do anything else. So right. I dug into some of the policies that were being passed in America from the president at the time was Donald Trump. And there was so much verbiage, so many headlines, so many news stories about how he was basically just screwing up the world. And so mm. I dove into that and I was shocked because I was reading the policies that he had passed and the news didn't line up. Mm-hmm. And so I started to get really kind of excited because I thought I had stu- I thought I had stumbled onto something pretty mm-hmm. important. Yeah. And I wasn't sharing my opinion. I went to my Facebook and I said, hey, I thought this was really fascinating. Maybe you will too. And I copied and pasted 300 and something policies that Donald Trump had passed from 2016 to 2020 that improved the state of America, improved the economy, mm-hmm. improved HBU, HBCU colleges, mm-hmm. improved national park preservations, improved, you know, sustainability, fuel dependency, things like that. It just, I, I wasn't sharing opinion. I was actually sharing What fact. happened? Yeah. And that post. It went viral. It went, I just, I lost all my friends, I lost multiple family members. I lost my business. Wow. It was one. Did you know that you were in a circle of, of lion's den? No, <laughs> I had no idea that, that because politics had never been discussed with any of your friends or your family. Like no. it just never, no, never my even family. Then, was, like that was still, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is even if you go back to the Obama years, like there was quite a bit of pretty black and white division, you know, from the left and the right. And even through all of that, you just never. Ignorance was bliss. And in my family, you don't talk about religion and politics. Okay. It was just kind of the standing rule. And I had no idea why. I just, I knew that there, all I knew was that they were topics that people argued about most. Got it. And so that was that was basically the the change maker there is all of a sudden I was, Oh, I'm enlightened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I know what type of core vein this strikes with everyone. And because I was so, so vehemently rejected mm-hmm. and the treatment was not even I knew that there was just like this derangement in the way that people, people were talking to me. It was like, you are one of my best friends. Oh my. You are my family member. We have blood and you, I've had, I had people wishing me dead. Wow. 
I wasn't even sharing an opinion. It wasn't even like if you are this, then this. And so it was just that one life. one thing. Like one it wasn't thing. like you know, this continual, uh, uh, radical like. What do you see? Those people that get on social media and they just can't get out of their own way. Where they just yes. every day they have to they say, was, something. say something and s- stir up the nest. This wasn't even that. This was one piece of information that was facts, mm-hmm. and you shared it. And from there, it just all went to hell in a handbasket. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, you don't find out right away that, okay, well, there's not much of a career left for me in photography. You keep moving on and moving on and moving on and keep trying and trying and trying until you realize that you're going to have to pivot. Mm -hmm. How long did that take before you pivoted? (laughs) I'm still pivoting. Yeah. I'm still recovering from it. Okay. Yeah. Up until about six months ago. Are you getting no, I mean, surely you're, okay, so here's what we're going to do on the Paparon podcast. You're going to have to, <laughs> if you're a right winger, especially, and you're getting ready to have a wedding, you need to give Kara a call and she will do your pictures. Or are you, do you still do photography? I do. I okay. still love it. How I've, would they get a hold of you? Uh, KCM Studio, Kansas City Metro, essentially. It's to make it really easy. KCM Studios is the name of the studio and it's KCM. Kansas City Metro. I made it. I didn't want to use my name because yeah. years ago people were like, Amanda Thompson photography. It's like, good mm. luck finding that in the dredges <laughs> of Google world. So I right. knew I didn't want to use yeah. my name. And so I was like, well, okay. Kansas City Metro, how could, Kansas City Metro Vision, yeah. Kansas City Metro, like studios. That sounds, and that's also speaking to my future that there will be more than one. Yeah, yeah. So. And it could be a recording studio, an art gallery. It could be a photography studio. It could yeah. be a variety of different things. Um, so kcmstudio.com. KCMstudios.com. Studios, plural, plural. So go check that out. So there's there's a plug of one of many things that we're going to talk about (laughs) today. Um, So you're still pivoting and you're doing the podcast and that's getting called Happiness Habit Podcast, uh, top 10 rated podcast. And what is the focus there? At first it was, in 2020, it was just giving somebody a resource to kind of unravel their emotional crisis or their mental thought loop spiral that was kind of getting out of control. Cause when we went into lockdown mode, there was no avoidance, distraction, numbing. We, we kind of had to sit with our stuff. And I think it was horribly uncomfortable for a lot of people to realize how much of their lives they had been living in this kind of hostage situation of Mm -hmm. I'm going to busy my life or I'm going to be workaholic or I'm going to numb out with alcohol or I'm going to have these massive groups of friends to kind of barricade me from seeing any of the things in my life that that are not working Mm -hmm. so we we stayed at home and people got really uncomfortable and people got really depressed people got really suicidal Mm -hmm. people got really addicted Mm -hmm. and nobody was helping them I just all I saw was just desperation and you know after the first couple of weeks where our humor you know i saw so many things it was like god we are funny freaking people so many videos in <laughs> i know <laughs> april and the may memes was just, that were out there oh, oh god we are such a funny species yeah. it, it was amazing but then june came around and then we did the polarity we did the division we did the race mm-hmm. racism we did all of the then we started pointing fingers and the po- political ideologies and then the covid opinions and it just became ugly. Yeah. And I was just tired of the ugliness. Okay. It's like, what, what did I, what does everybody really want? Well, most of the people are, they think they're looking for happiness. 
and I was just, I knew that I had something to speak on. Okay, let's, let's take what anxiety is. I'm going to break it down. Let's take what, ha- one of my first episodes, one of the most downloaded episodes is breakdown of happiness, the cause and the effect. And I just scientifically, what is happiness? How is it attained? What does it look like? What is it in the brain? What is it in the body? How does it translate to our life? What causes it? What are the definitions of it? Mm-hmm. And fr- it was just, take another thing, take another thing, take, take the subject of addiction. What causes addiction? I even have an episode in my last season that walks somebody through a suicidal spiral mm. to kind of unravel what the mind does to itself when it starts suicidal ideation and essentially losing that sense of resourcefulness. You kind of, you go into your amygdala, your survival mind, and you're stuck there in a stress response trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And your resourcefulness, the thing that would be able to get you out the doorway out, is blocked. And you, your, brain, your brain plays a trick on you mm-hmm. that you actually don't have any resource left. That <laughs> all of the options, all of the other doorways are shut. Yeah. To get rid of the pain, to get rid of the suffering, to get rid of this spiral to stop it, you have to commit suicide. Yeah. And it's a trick. And I kind of help somebody at least kind of quite figuratively talk them off the ledge and kind of slow down at very least slow down the sense, get back into the body. You had this conversation as a podcast, like it was a recording. Mm -hmm. How do you stumble across that person and how do you give the, how, I mean, because I, um, when people are typically suicidal in my experience and, and you would know better than I would, um, when I was having that ideation, man, I did not want to let, I didn't want anybody to know. Yeah. You know, you know because like, there's a lot of shame around it too. A lot of shame. Which I mean, is the, exactly why I named it Get Out of a Suicidal Spiral. It's just straight out, out there because anybody that's going through that, it's like, oh my God, that's, that's, it's not, it's out there, it's unashamed. Yeah. And it's telling me that that episode is for me. It's very unique though that you were able to find someone that was, willing to be vulnerable enough to go through that conversation with you. You didn't. I, so yeah. Did what does that look like? How does that happen? I did it retrospectively. What I would have said to my brother, Chad. Okay. So this wasn't, I got it. I got it. This is more wow. meant for anybody. Wow. That had to have taken some planning. That yeah. had taken some time. More prep, emotional prep. Well, yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. In, in all, in all areas. Um, let's back up just a little bit because you're now a, a life coach. <laughs> you're too far away for me to kick you. <laughs> uh, you go into, you do, you do public speaking. Um, you're an influence. You are someone that it brings motivation and inspiration and personal development. And people look up to you. The people seek you in your content because they might find hope or education um, you though, we haven't really got to the point where you were able to heal, where you were able to understand and come to grips with what it, your trauma mm-hmm. and where you needed to be to forgive and be healed and then move forward and then use all of that experience as a testimony, mm-hmm. uh, to what you're doing now for work. Yeah. So let's get to the healing moment. <laughs> How did you heal? Where, where, where did it all kind of meet? Last year, I ended a relationship with someone I was going to marry. And 
you know, there was just this constant whisper or questioning or nagging or whatever you want to call it, this constant talking to myself, kind of that I knew better. And I would, I would tell her, you know, go, go as far away from here as you can. I can't face you. It was truth. It was what I needed, what I needed to hear, who I really am, a constant state of self-abandonment that needed to be maintained in order to, to facilitate and maintain that relationship to find myself in smaller and smaller corners. I was trying to fit myself in everybody else's life. Mm. I didn't require anybody to show up in mine. Mm. I was going to give and give and give and people please and chase approval. And I didn't need much. I didn't need anything in return. Just give me a small newspaper corner in your life and I'll be totally happy with that. Mm. But in order to maintain that, newspaper corner I would jump through hoops I would become somebody else I would do, I would be the yes girl and anything you wanted so then to clarify you ended the relationship because you hadn't dealt with your baggage and it was so it was more so that than it was anything that he was doing wrong there was the type of person that I was attracting repeated on loop where they would not they were incapable of self-introspection and it was, you need to change so I don't have to. Uh. And that (laughs) I realized that this is the same theme that existed in my relationship with my father. So it was kind of the uncoupling of that one moment where I realized I can't, this is not sustainable. Yeah. I can't do this. I'm becoming a shell of myself. I don't even, I don't even know who I am. I don't have an identity. Why do you think it was that you were finding yourself attracted to those types of people? Because it's your imprint. If if it's what you know of love, that's what you will. Yeah. But I mean, I guess let me ask it differently. Then these guys were just completely unempathetic people. Like, no, I mean, was he just a heartless person? No. Because that's the perception that I'm gathering. No, there is, there are a lot of different types of personalities out there. And when it comes to things like narcissistic personality, there's, there's a few kinds there's, but the two that I found in my corner most often was covert and overt. Overt's the one, you know, they're the, they're the ones that things are the greatest things since sliced bread. They're trying to, they're boist because they boast themselves because they they're trying to cover cover up for a deeply seated story of inadequacy and they're mm-hmm. out there they're obnoxiously out there and yeah. you could any narcissist when i say narcissist you think of the ones that are flamboyantly expressively just obnoxiously they're out so there. obnoxiously confident deep down inside they're very yes they're doing it to insecure yeah yeah and then the covert ones were my favorite way to torture myself because the covert ones appear, the shy, self-introspective, extremely intelligent, ve- very empathetic. It's almost like that is their, that is their secret gift. Mm. And they think that they're just, they've just been gifted with empathy and the gift of empathy. The problem is most of them come from extremely damaged households where they had to be empathetic because they had to read the room. Mm their parents were addicted to something and Mm. they had to make sure that the environment was going to be okay. They had to read, Oh, that expression looks like 
he's going for my brother or, oh, dad's going from the front door to the cabinet. Oh, I know what that means. It's time to take mom upstairs or they kind of, the, the, the blow up happened again. Now I have to keep up appearances at school and tell a lie or cover mm. up the bruise or wear mm. the, wear the shirt this way. And so they compensate, but it's a compensation out of deep pain and deep wounding. And it's still an inadequacy story. Yep. It's still a mode of constant compensation, but it's also, they can't go. They still can't go to a place of anything that would kind of unravel the structure because they have the whole thing built up to keep up appearances. They have the whole facade built up. These are the ones that appear, they look perfect mm -hmm. on the outside and they have it all together and they look like too good to be true. And you wonder kind of what's like phony or fake. Yeah. You're just like something feels Something feels not right Social about media has manufactured so many narcissistic oh, personalities. Uh, but in it, you know, like since social media, I think it's, it, it's obviously perpetuated the problem. Yeah. I, is what I'm ultimately it saying. It shows us more of who we are, not, it didn't make more narcissists. It just showed how many there really are. Yeah. Well, that, but that's probably a better way of saying it. It's just that, you know, their persona is, is that you, whenever, here's what I'm saying. When you see that person who posts regularly and everything is looking great and they're just showing they're going and doing this and doing that and my life is so great and we're just so blessed and everything, mm -hmm. it's almost like, what are you covering up? Yeah. You know, like that is almost the first red flag that, hey, there might be a narcissistic trait there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that was so anyway, you were, so you, so what you're then telling me then is that you were falling for, and when I say falling, you were finding yourself attracted to those with narcissistic personalities. Yes. Unbeknownst to me. Right. And it was always a matter of they could be whoever they wanted to be. And I had to jump through the hoops and my true feelings, true needs, true values, true identity was mm. just not permitted to enter. Mm. So you called the wedding off like, were you running from the altar or how close did you get from? <laughs> well, we had, it was always in existed in conversation and it was, you know, it was very, I found out later that there was a proposal impending, but we unfortunately never got to that point. We were just living together and yeah, the whole thing kind of exploded prior to, and there was a habit of him darting when things would get, when I would get a little too real, when I'd get a little too honest, when I'd need something that actually required a full show up. <laughs> gotcha. And so I was starting to realize that I was in a constant state of crossroad, that in order to maintain this, I was going to have to tailor, suture, <laughs> carve scalp with a scalpel mm -hmm. little little and little more pieces of who I am what I needed what I wanted and it was just like the the constant like I will never avoid criticism the mm -hmm. receding the horizon to that man's approval will always recede and then I realized oh my god that's the same situation as my mm -hmm. dad <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah and so that uncoupling mm -hmm. that realization led to not only do I have to kind of deconstruct and unseat myself from this relationship. Right. I have to look for the theme in all the others and kind of facilitate a full barrier of a full scale 
dome of protection of those types of relationships in my life, including the one with my father. Okay, this is where then it gets deep because you don't just figure it out. Like one night or one morning you wake up and be like, oh, now it all makes sense to me. Like there has to be some work. Like you have to do the work. It's horrible. And and to do the work, did you do it by yourself? Did you go to therapy? Did you do, um, you know, retreats? How did you get the knowledge and the tutelage to understand what it was that you had been experiencing this entire life? I started like many others. I kind of vomited TMI and questions all over my friends. Mm, okay. And they gave me the confirmation bias. They gave me comfort. They assured me of my worth and so many other things. But then after that, it's like, okay, what do I do about it? Right. And friends are, you know, go to therapy, get the book, go sign up for this, sign up mm-hmm. for that. And I, I still needed help sorting. I just still need it. And I think that that's where talk therapy comes in. Talk therapy has a part of the healing process. I don't think it's meant to be the whole healing process for anyone, but as far as organizing your thoughts and, mm-hmm. and hear somebody hearing the, the stuff that plays on loop, mm-hmm. it, they need to be able to kind of help you make sense of certain things and draw conclusions from other things and get you to a better place of reasoning so you're not under the surface of all of this chatter and all of this constant internal dialogue. They get you above the surface. Mm-hmm. You can go, oh, okay, that wave's coming. I know why that wave's coming. Mm-hmm. I know what that wave coming means, and I know what to kind of do to pass through it. But then, you know, that's the 20% work. It's the mindset. It's the mantras. It's the thinking. It's the logic. It's the sorting. Right. I was still, even though therapy even though I was utilizing all of the things that helped with the mind, my guts felt like they were thrown over an electric fence line Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. I felt terrified. I was jumpy. I was short fused. I just, I was so easy to trigger. I was like a wild animal. I can relate to that. And I couldn't, I couldn't make it stop. And I don't know how, but I'm so grateful. My, chiropractor and I got in touch around that time and I don't know how I found him. I don't even know. I think I was. You're telling me a chiropractor fixed your problems. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I'm not laughing at that. I've just did not expect that to he be come started. out of your mouth. Okay. He started right. the, right. the process. Right. There's, there's more to be done. There's more healing to be done, more purging to be done. And can I ask like what kind of techniques is he doing or is it just regular maintenance chiropractic maintenance? Well, at first you know, he has to make sure that your nervous system's aligned. Okay. Because I felt like I was just being electrified. And he was like, oh yeah, this is, this." He, he knows how to get the nervous system in alignment to where there's no like, if you have like a stuck point in your mm-hmm. spine, a stuck point mm-hmm. here, it's like you have this electrical fissure essentially sure. that's going to constantly signal you discomfort. That's what helps with. So my anxiety, I just, he would, barely touch me or graze me and it would just be like right there like that and it just be I would be pan it wouldn't it wasn't I wasn't injured physically I wasn't a somebody that you know has the crazy injury where it's a back injury yeah. and now I'm I can't walk or whatever this was emotional injury that he did you have with. a specific place on your body where you were feeling that tightness or that that electric shock my lower gut oh in the abdomen area okay and it felt like I was, I couldn't breathe all the way. 
I was breathing at the top part of my lungs and just utterly incapable of being, I was so triggered, so activated, so constantly on Hmm. sleep was crazy. Um, just anxiety was 24 seven. Yeah. Nonstop 24-7 and debilitating. Were you able to find through therapy or research that that was a common um, association to trauma? That is where my entire relationship with the nervous system began as it comes to the true fully processing healing and moving through that. I thought, oh my God, if people are in therapy for 20 years for something that happened to them, and they're still not getting better. At that point, I was like, well, yeah, medication makes sense because then we'll get a, they're chemically imbalanced or they are, something else is going on. They have a, they have a disorder of some mm-hmm. kind, not realizing at all that these people are still processing something that's lodged in their, their body. Their body stored it mm-hmm. in their nervous system mm-hmm. and it's just kept them in a stress response, kept their brain operating in an amygdala survival, survival state. And when we do that, essentially trauma becomes even in top therapy becomes worse because mm-hmm. we go in, we share our bloody story. We re-traumatize ourselves in the re-injury of retelling it. We go through the limbic system does not know time and space. So it puts us back in that room with the abuser. It puts us back in the room with the drug. It, it And we tell the story. We put ourselves back in that state as it's fresh and new. We leave for a week. We live in a survival state for a week. We medicate with food, drugs, alcohol, sex, porn, whatever. And then we just come back and do it all over again Mm -hmm. and nothing goes anywhere. Mm -hmm. But because you don't want to feel it, they give you a numbing where you don't feel highs, you don't feel lows. You just kind of zombie out. And then your life becomes zombified and you wonder why you're suicidal in two years after therapy stops working. So I knew that there was a hole, a massive hole in the mental and emotional world as far as health and wellness goes but I had no idea that this is, this is science. This is, can be, this can be physically proven. This is a miracle. And then the concept of breath and then also regulating the nervous system with those profound signals to create safety for an emotion to express itself. And then emotions are either expressed or suppressed. Mm -hmm. And the ones that are suppressed cause they have to find another path out. Mm -hmm. And so it comes out in chronic headaches or sleep, apnea and the inability to function in some form or another to some degree or another. And so my, my world kind of got turned upside down. And for those, because this is a local podcast, he is so brilliant at understanding the emotional connection to the body and the nervous system and how much it, if you have a child that's bedwetting, there's a reason. If you have, if you struggle with chronic allergies there's a reason and it's in the nervous system his name is dr justin grabowski and where does he at where does his practice at he's on 135th and just west of antioch okay 135th and say the name one more time dr justin grabowski grabowski Mm -hmm. chiropractic grabowski yeah yeah that's polish right i'm not sure (laughs) i'm not sure sounds like it uh not gronkowski grabowski Grabowski, 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 Justin Grabowski. All right. Um, I just wanted to say that so many times just so that it (laughs) resonates and it sticks in their mind. It's not like Joe Smith, you know? Um, So that was your first start to healing. Yeah. Wow. I could go in there and he asked me what was going on and I basically burst into tears 
and I, I shared with him everything. And the very first were you year, friends with him before or no? Uh, but you, we became fast friends after that. I, mean, I guess what I'm saying is, is how did you get to the vulnerable state to where you felt comfortable talking to then is just some stranger chiropractor <laughs> or did somebody recommend him? No, because that was the kind of practice that he had. No, I went into the room and his energy provided such a sense of safety. Okay, I had no intention. I I was in there because I I knew that there were potentially a nervous system situation that could be aligned and I would feel at least less frazzled. But ultimately going in there, I, I didn't know who he was. And he walked in the room, his countenance, his smile, his body language, and his energy, you just, your guard falls down okay. with him. Yeah, he, I, would, I would consider, if you're going through a breakup, get in there. My ex-husband actually just went through one and I sent him there and he said that, that through a breakup, like a relationship, a relationship breakup, breakup guru. That is incredible. <laughs> that is, that's a first, like I gotta say, I've heard a lot of crazy stuff since doing this podcast and, and I'm not, that's not really crazy. It's just something unique and, and yeah. different than what I've heard. So, but did you go to therapy then? Did you ended up? I did. And then I stopped after when I need sorting, I will still schedule okay. a therapist appointment okay. and I love mine. Um, she's a Casey Welco and anytime I need her when I, when I'm not in a situation where my sorting is kind of my sorting needs sorted and I am in the inside of the goldfish bowl. I'm like, I can't see what the label says cause I'm still inside the jar. Mm -hmm. She helps me get back outside the jar okay. and I love her. Yeah. All right. So we're going to take a break here real quick. When we come back, I want to get a little bit more clarity as how then, it's not like you're a psychologist, right? No. Like you don't, you're not a doctor, you didn't no. go to, you're not a therapist, but man, you talk like one. <laughs> you, you've got a lot of information. You sound brilliant about all of this stuff. So you, I, I want to get a little bit more information about that, what you're doing now. And of course, the story about Tony Robbins, because he's one of the biggest names in the motivational speaking world. That's all coming up here next with Kara Payton on the Papa Ron Podcast. The Papa Ron Podcast is brought to you by the award-winning Heartland Waterfowl, airing each week on Sportsman's Channel. Check out heartlandwaterfowl.com for airtimes and be sure to browse their online store. Also, subscribe to the Heartland Waterfowl YouTube channel and watch their new original series, including their podcast, Behind the Blind. Check it out and don't doubt the scout. Now, back to the Papa Ron Podcast. Here's Ronnie Phillips and Jillian Gray. Once again, Jillian couldn't be on this edition of the Papa Ron Podcast. Hope to have her back again soon. And the Papa Ron Podcast brought to you by Clean AF. Clean Polish Protect, specifically formulated to protect and beautify surfaces, including plastic, vinyl, rubber, and carbon fiber. Water-resistant formulation is safe for use on gloss and matte finishes and makes the cleanup process easier by forming a durable coating that repels mud, dirt, and debris. Apply lightly and buff to a dry sheen. Perfect for all power, power sports enthusiasts. You can purchase online at cleanabsolutelyflawless.com or check it out at Dell's Power Sports in Grain Valley, Missouri. Back with Karen Payton. I'm loving this conversation. It's almost like it's almost like the conversation that we had on Zoom a couple weeks ago. Obviously, it's a little bit more detailed. I'm finding out a lot more information that I didn't know before, but I love these kind of conversations. And it sounds like your podcast is similar to this in the fact that the effort is to just get below the surface or some say pull back the curtain and get to know people on a very raw and authentic level. And I really appreciate your vulnerability 
of doing that. And it sounds like that that's what you've really kind of made a career doing now is you've got this, this story and a variety of different life experiences that most, I guess, aren't so great. Mm -hmm. And you have learned something from all of that to where now you can apply it to help others through their struggle. It's, it's, you're, you're using your platform, your stories to serve others, right? Mm. Um, which is so cool. And it's really the reason why I'm doing this podcast. It's not for anybody to feel sorry for me and what I experienced. I feel like God has blessed me with a skill set and the gift to gab and, and the ability to use technology and, uh, and have a network uh, of people and, and be somewhat influential that, that by using my story and using my relationships and meeting new people. Again, it was a relationship with a mutual friend that brought us together that we can co collaborate in. And hopefully this podcast has the ability to help someone down the road. And there's the beauty about podcasts is that once you do them and they're out there, they live forever, right? It's not like this is a one-time live radio show. And then if you weren't listening while you're yeah. driving to work, you missed out on it. So it has the opportunity to influence and impact many, many people. So I said before we went to break that I was really curious on how you go from going to the chiropractor and maybe going to a therapist every once in a while to gaining this unbelievable amount of knowledge to where then you are confident to get up in front of people and be a public speaker about a variety of different topics that deal with um, uh, mental health and personal development. Yeah, I had an opportunity to go into professional, you know, the, the official school, the official, I guess, in, indoctrination process where it has to be traditional and according I just there was so many different things about the the studies out there that I don't I think are evolving and I think we're about to see neuroscience as it as a whole explode from we're going to look the way that we do things now is going to feel barbaric in less than 10 years I think that it's going to be such a not that anybody with licensing and like a professional therapist is going to look um, like they don't know what they're doing, but I think it's going to be more of a, a liability to the, the groundwork that you can actually cover with okay. someone. There's just the way that I do things is when someone needs to dive deeper into the subconscious, I don't want rules of my practice to govern where or not I can go with someone to the depths and to the, there's too many rules. There's too many black and white. There's too much red tape. There's too many mm -hmm. things that I don't want to, I don't believe in diagnoses. I don't believe in permanent terminal situations for people. And if, if that were the case, I would have been bipolar in my teens. The suicidal mm -hmm. would have, the suicidal nature that mm -hmm. I basically lived under for decades would have demanded that some sort of mental diagnosis would have been necessary. And a lot of different medications pumped through your system. And I just, I can't, I can't, I've, I've tried so many times to be like, it would be so nice to have the letters after my name. It would be so nice to feel qualified. It would be so nice yeah. to, to feel educated. And then the more that I would do, because there's so many courses and so many online resources as far as trauma certifications and things that you can go through that would give me that, but at what cost? And every single time I would look through the protocol, I'm like, I don't, 
I don't, I don't believe in that. Mm. I believe that the human is so much more capable and so much more powerful and so much more neuroplasticity alone is blowing our minds exponentially. Every single day we are learning hundreds of new things about the mind. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of the stuff that's in our books are going, is going to be relevant in a very, very short amount of time. Research is debunking entire case studies and entire things that we've formed entire practices on top of. So I still, I know that there's going to be more that will look at my experience and think how, how ignorant you're, how, how, how a trauma uninformed. And I think trauma uninformed good Mm. because I, to be trauma informed Trauma is constantly speaking to the situation, constantly speaking to my identity, constantly mm-hmm. speaking to my future, constantly speaking to a diagnosis, constantly yeah. speaking to my limitations. Yep. I think we should be trauma uninformed. Yeah. There are people out there that have been raped, attempted, attempted murder, trafficked, seen so much more trauma than I could ever even dream of in right. my worst and more vivid, dizziest nightmares. Sure. And they are not traumatized. So if... Trauma is a state of fact, something to put in a textbook, something to form a diagnosis on, something to label somebody indefinitely. If it's a fact, then why aren't 100 people that experience trauma traumatized? If it's a fact, Mm -hmm. all 100 people would have signs or show some sort of doom and gloom sentence in some capacity. I don't think trauma is a fact. Trauma is not the event. It's what happens inside of you because of the event, and we have control of that. We have the ability to move through that. If we have the ability to direct our thoughts Mm -hmm. and we have the ability to process emotion at will, we have the ability to move a trauma out, to move past, to, I don't want to use that word, transcend. We have the ability to evolve past it. Right. So it's not a, it's not a fact of life. Mm -hmm. And that's going to rub up a lot of people backwards. It's, and I'm, I'm aware of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that there's, I'm walking around with another target on my back. That's not political, and yeah. it's, but it's, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think, well, my brother, combat veteran, PTSD, he went through the therapy. He went through the retreats. He yeah. had the medication. He had all the support that the world, the books, the therapists, the professionals, he had every single resource tool available to him and it still didn't save him why did he fall for the, through the cracks then if that's fact and that's fact mm-hmm. where's the gap how who covers the gap i want to live in the gap so that's so cool oh, i got so many questions i want to ask after all of that i i guess where the next thing i was going with it you start the podcast in 2020 you start going to the chiropractor. Actually, let's back up to, to before that. You break up with the soon-to-be fiance a year ago, right? You said you about more. a year ago, a little yeah, more than little, a year yeah, ago. Yeah. Okay, so we're looking at this evolution of Kara Payton from 2020 through this breakup in 2022, two years later, to going through chiropractic this chiropractor occasionally seeing a therapist to now let me bring it up here. Cause I had it up. Um, 
becoming a motivational speaker, authenticity strategist, subconscious reprogramming, reprogramming expert. By the way, what is an authenticity strategist? That is a great, great <laughs> title. Can I, can I title myself that? Or is that something you, I mean, I love these titles, subconscious reprogram, reprogramming expert. That is, that is incredible. Um, obviously I, I see where you're going with there. It's you're, you're, um, you're trying to deliver the message in a very sexy way. And I love it. I want to know how do you get to in the last year and what you went and went through since the breakup through chiropractic and and the, the therapy to then feel confident in each one of these titles. And because you're good, like I've seen your content, like mm-hmm. you are very convicted in, in your message and people want to come and see you speak. And I'm, I'm fascinated that in all of the years of trauma that you experience and all the different, I mean, the variety of different trauma and, and different just hard times that in the, in this, in the, in the time of basically a couple of years, you're doing this. That's remarkable. How do you do that? Well, a lot of pain first. Sure. It, it fuels, pain fuels so much of your journey. I mean, some people would have to, they would have to go to school and collect years of information and knowledge and to do the things that you're doing. I'm, I, I'm fascinated by that. And that's the compliment. <laughs> I'm not questioning it. Please don't take him. He's like, no, not are you all. legit? That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying, I am really like when I was going through, I was stalking you on Facebook. If you, if I really just admit it, um, and I'm listening and the content and, and, um, and your excerpts from the, from the podcast, I'm like, man, this girl has got her shit together. She, she's very well informed. And then I'm hearing your story today and I'm like, tell me you've been only doing this for about a year. Like after this and this and this and the timeline of all this stuff happened, that's remarkable. How does that happen? Desperation and obsession does a lot for somebody who absolutely realizes that everything has to change. You start clawing at the walls for your, for your freedom. And it clicked together that the common theme in every single pain, every single story, every single revival, every single reinvention, every single new chapter where I've always gone wrong is there was an invitation at some point in the crossroads to Mm self-abandon, to choose to be somebody else in order to gain the marriage, the job, the client, the relationship, whatever. Mm -hmm. There was always a point where I had to lie to myself that, sorry, you can't come with, not Mm -hmm. all of you, Mm -hmm. some of you. And then that self-denial over and over you start joining in with your abusers. Mm-hmm. And so when you have the entire world that tells you you're not good enough, you're not enough, I can't love you as you are, you have to become this in order mm. for me to do that, and you, 80% of you, agrees with them yep. because you locked away 20% of it, mm-hmm. this 20%, it never stops seeking you. Mm. It never stops chasing you. That's incredible. And it's inherent. And it's not going anywhere. And so every single time you're face down in the dust and the dirt of the arena after being abandoned again, after being abused again, after being left behind again, when you, your world is shattered again and it's nothing but silence, nothing but pain, nothing but the aftermath, right. 
the dust settles, that whisper is the only thing you hear. And there's so many times I heard that whisper and I'm like, I know, but I've still got some, I've still got some experimenting to do. I know I can figure this game out. Mm -hmm. I can jump high enough to make it through that hoop. I can get the approval. I can finally chase it. I will find that horizon, the rainbow pot of gold at the, I will chase it down and I will eventually find it. And this 20% part of you goes, okay, I'll be here. The biggest thing that I heard from that is that you were able to understand what that 20% is recognize its importance and listen to it when it's talking to you. And so many people don't. And that's why I can speak Mm -hmm. to the degree that I can, because everybody has the 20%. They know they've been ignoring it. They know they've been playing the game and they desperately don't want to. Everybody's tired of playing this bullshit facade. Yeah, We're tired of living our (laughs) lives with some this negotiation process of who we are and who we really are. And we just want to be seen, loved, known, heard, felt, connected. We're, we crave intimacy, but we're settling for connection every single day in so many different platforms and so many different areas, re- arenas, relationships, workplaces. We want the real, but we settle for filters. We want the genuine and the authentic mm-hmm. that will settle for anything but. Yep. And it's it's sad. And our lives are our lives are so much more valuable than that. There's so mm-hmm. and to dive into authenticity, even John eight thirty two says the truth will set you free. Mm-hmm. And what's ironic is that last relationship, one of the last things he said was he gave that verse. It was before I discovered any of this. I guess he was trying to do it to be some you know, pitching some wisdom on high, like he had, was the wiser, or the the more together of us. Mm-hmm. And I, but I, I, I chewed on it. Like you're, <laughs> you're right. Mm-hmm. And people want freedom. Yeah. The only way to freedom is truth. Yeah. That's deep. That's really good. Very, very good. What uh, Tony Robbins? How do you? Um, you were a volunteer team builder, mm-hmm. event production and volunteer team building builder for Tony Robbins. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that happen? Tony's world is actually a lot more accessible than people think. Really? Apparently. Because <laughs> I was like, you talked about earlier about you're really good in those situations, you know, and just identifying people's personalities and figuring out what makes them tick. And then, you know, obviously... You're kind of a chameleon, mm-hmm. right? You can adapt to different environments and, yes. people and personalities. Um, was that what, were you able to have a conversation with him directly or was it somebody within the team that it gave you the, the opportunity? So the opportunity is given to anybody that participates in the event as oh. a participant. Okay. You can turn around and volunteer. And I bought a ticket to the event because I actually didn't know anybody thought like Tony Robbins, thought more critically about life, love, the pursuit of happiness. I just, everybody that I knew in my life was always just wake up, pay the bills, go to the job, day to day, rinse yeah. and repeat. Nothing about my life was specifically fabulous, but we're supposed to call our, call our lives, you know, blessed yeah. or something. And when I had that moment walking into the house and I asked, you know, the universe essentially just break yeah. me open. Sure. 
I fell into content from Tony Robbins immediately after. And I was like, this guy, what he's you talking. You fell into it? Was it something you were seeking out? Was it like getting up every day, like in, in, in going to YouTube and searching Tony Robbins or um, following him on Instagram? Probably a combination of, you know, kind of internet searching life stuff, just how yeah. to, how to be happy and how to live a life that actually matters, how to get out of depressive episodes or how to rekindle your marriage or just certain various things. And his name kept popping up because okay. he talks about all of this stuff. And I ended up finding a commercial for a ticket to um, either date with destiny or unleash the power within. It's one of his basic internal things. And I, I jumped in, I drank the Kool-Aid. I even bought a ticket for my husband at the time. I was like, we need to go, we need to go do so this. So this was a while ago. Yeah. Where and was it? Was it local? Was, was he in town? No, we, um, he and I, I think flew to San Jose in California. That's where the event was. And we were from Kansas city to San Jose and it was life changing. And that was kind of the, the split for my ex-husband and I, he wasn't into it. And I was all in on fire, 100 level gas pedal to the floor. Okay. And I, I basically ran away with the circus and be, I turned around and found out that I could volunteer to work the events after participating. I did that. And I basically just toured with the monkeys. I was like, wherever you go, I'm there. doesn't matter how far. It says volunteer. Does that mean you weren't getting paid to do this? Eventually it became where you volunteer for a certain point, but then when they want you at the events, when you're just your service and your level of performance and your ability to just go be wherever needs to be the most helped and you make the events better, mm -hmm. they'll, it, you kind of work your way to like, they'll, they'll pay for your way for you to go there. And then it, it does eventually become, we actually, we want you on the, on, on the staff. We, we, can you do this regularly? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately to be a staff member, with something that's based in San Diego, you need to be able to be there, you know, two to three weeks out of the month. And that's on top of being in Singapore, being in, you know, London being. And so it was just like with kids, yeah. I, I would have loved to have had that opportunity at a different time in my life, but you know, it's so that our, our paths crossed and I still just live vicariously through all of that time because who I became. Right. I was, I was a totally different person. You put me in a crew shirt and throw me backstage at one of those events and I'm on a production riser watching 14,000 people at a time yeah. go through something completely life-changing. Yeah. That is the biggest high. It has yet to be, it is yet to be replaced by a better, more fulfilling feeling. Did your inspiration to be a motivational speaker an authenticity strategist and subconscious reprogramming expert come from watching Tony on stage. hundred percent. I mean, you, it's like you see that and go, I want to do what that guy's doing. That guy has influence. He brings so much positivity. People uh, adore him. Um, and I would think that in much of your healing process and that a lot of things that he, and because you were on the road and you got to, you got, it wasn't like going one time. Like you got to hear this repeatedly. So it more, it's like um, out of sight, out of mind is the old saying is, you know, you go, you hear it what one time and then people leave and they just go back to their old ways. You were fortunate enough to where you were, it was in repetition. Yeah, you got to hear it over and over and over again to where you could memorize yes. these performances to where then it's intel for what is actually important for your healing process. Right. And then 
be able to regurgitate it essentially and to be your own motivational speaker. Yeah. And it wasn't even him and his influence, his power, his energy or anything. That was all, that was the the showmanship, the performance of it. That's, yeah. it's very exciting and it gets sure. your energy buzzed. But at the end of the day, what really drew me to him and made me just fall in love with who he is, is when he year after year, event after event, month after month, no matter how many hours these things would take, we get on Tony time and it's, you know, you're awake for 20 hours, but you still have the same amount of energy that you did when you mm -hmm. first woke up the next morning. It was when he would talk about the inherent big life stuff, the qualities of a person missing their potential and then realizing it and transforming and breaking through to the other side of some limit that, that's been holding them back. Mm -hmm. He would cry every time. He would talk about the gratitude he had for every single audience member. And at the end of the events, he would just pour into people. And I watched him do this weekend after weekend after weekend, and he never didn't. Mm -hmm. It was always felt. It was always just such a lay down his heart. Yeah. And it was like, if you if he can facilitate his own lifestyle, his own health, his own power, his own wealth, his own relationships to where he can sustain that. Yeah. I can't think of a higher purpose for my life when it starts here, that self-worth mm -hmm. to where you are an absolute vessel for transformation for people. That connection, your health is your self-worth and your self-worth is the value you can offer in the world. And when mm -hmm. you do that and you have that build where it starts with you, the airline mask goes on you first, you can actually impact. There's so many people wanting to sell, sell snake oil out there because they're like, I'm compensating for something. I want you to pay for my laptop lifestyle. I don't have any of this shit figured out, but I can sell you that I do. I can make you think that <laughs> yeah, I do. Right. It's, <laughs> it's still, you're, you're watching this industry kind of split where there's people that do that and you can kind of feel it out. But a lot of people get screwed for, I'm, I'm one of them. I've, I've hired coaches before where it's like, Oh, there's 50 grand in the hole and mm. none the wiser for it. Mm. And, but then there's people like Tony that keep you tethered to yeah. like what really matters. People like Randy Garn, people like Ken Jocelyn, friends that will, I now have in my corner that speak life into me from a place of absolute overflow yeah. and abundance for the love of humanity. They're not, Ken, Ken is one of those that says, want something for people, not from them. And he's absolutely a walking testament to that. He yeah. wants the best for you and he will speak it to you until you actually see it. You're like, oh God, there it is. There's my potential. There's that identity that you've been talking about all along. That's so cool. I'm so proud of you. In, in with everything that you've gone through and to be so committed and dedicated to the why, right? Because it's, you don't get there. Nobody, I've tried to tell this to people and there's some people, very, actually 20% of the people get it, 80% of the people don't. And that is you can be an aspiring entrepreneur. You can aspire to be a business owner, all this, that, and any other. But if you don't have something, have a why mm -hmm. that is deeper than just making a lot of money, yeah, then you're not going to meet your full potential of success. Yeah. And you need to have a why that's, that encompasses why, but then also why you wouldn't 
Yeah. Yeah. That's the why good. not matters. Too. Right. Right. For sure. So I am, I'm, I'm really proud of you for what you've been able to do and overcome. Have you, uh, do you still keep in touch with Tony or, or any of his people? <laughs> How have you not had Tony Robbins on your podcast <laughs> is where I'm going with this. And then can you get him on mine? Right. <laughs> no, I actually haven't talked to him since 2017. 2017, 2018. And, um, but I'm still in touch with a lot of the crew members, a lot of the yeah. old staff and my everyday phone call I have with his head of security, uh, for 17 years. And he's one of my dearest friends, definitely a father figure for me, Alonzo. Cool. And, um, but yeah, there's still a lot of family members that are still connected. But as far as the guy up top, he's on to bigger, bigger, crazier things and out still saving the world. So it's definitely haven't talked to him in a really Just long time. Just keep plugging away and then you're going to be big enough and important enough to where he's going to make time for you. Put me on his Th stage. That's what, right, right. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to tell myself with this podcast. Just keep, just keep chopping wood and somewhere, some, somewhere along the way, it's going to get a little bit bigger. Maybe it'll become a top 10 ranked podcast one day. I don't even know. I, I I've never, I don't even know how you become one of those, but whatever, one day we'll see what happens. Speaking of which, the Happiness Habit Podcast. Yes. We want to definitely promote that. I would love anybody who listens to this podcast, uh, you know who you are. And many of you listen because you like the, the deep, raw, authentic content that talks about mental health um, or the personal development side of it. And you're going to get all of that and more with your podcast. That's the, that's the hope. Yeah. And, but, and you're more frequent than I am because <laughs> I, I'm, I did 37 episodes in my first year. I was really proud of that, but you're, you're trying to do one to maybe even two episodes a week. That has been the setup. I have also like you been now that I, I've had some significantly large guests on mine and I've been wanting to come up with a workflow that is more supportive. Mm -hmm. Um, definitely more just a better workflow in general that's more effective that that promotes my guests even on a higher level and so I've been kind of holding I have like 10 episodes that are uploaded from like Sean Whalen and Cody Jeffers like just amazing people yeah who are some others that people might recognize names that like if they're listening to this um to give them a little bit of Bait. Throw them, throw them some bait. <laughs> what, mention some of the biggest names that you've you've had on your podcast. Oh gosh, um, Sean's definitely the most recent that I I need to I need to get that thing uploaded. I just I hold myself to a standard that it has to be perfect. perfect. No, and so it. it's been staying on the it's in the queue forever. For those of you who don't know, that's uh, the so owner. get in there, subscribe to her podcast. You know that it's coming soon. Yes, absolutely. Lions not sheep coming at you soon. All right. Any <laughs> others? Um, I'm definitely. I'm definitely really excited about all of the episodes I've had with Brian Covey, Ken Jocelyn, Amberly Lagos coming soon. Cool. Um, that's coming in July. Keith Yaki's coming tomorrow. Um, that'll be, that's, he's does married game. He does very, very raw content for relationship people. So uh, he gives no bullshit about it. He'll tell you exactly how it is. And um, Cody Jefferson's a powerful motivational speaker really, really stand up guy and does embrace the lion, not to be confused with the lion's den that Sean Whalen does, mm -hmm. but um, they're both powerhouses. I'm super blessed to have all of the, the guys on that I've, I've had um, a few doctors. Dr. Rob Kelly is on there. Um, Dr. John or John, <laughs> Dr. James is um, he's going to, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of the sciences and the, yeah, there's definitely, plenty of upcoming stars and 
just very revelatory, deep conversation, conversative people that mm-hmm. do, do not hold Jake Havron did not hold back of his beginning story. He also has one, uh, an occasion with, uh, Tony Robbins. That was a pretty fantastic story too. And you'll occasionally be seen on KCTV five or Fox four. You've been making uh, some appearances actually most even recently within the last few weeks. I think you were on, which I want to say Fox four. Was it Fox four? They were both within a, within like a month of each other. So Kansas city, you're all over the place. You're crushing it. You're crushing it. The podcast is doing great. You're, you know, doing public appearances. I saw where you flew to, um, was it Oklahoma or Texas? Texas. Okay. Um, and so you're all over the map doing public uh, speaking. You've been in a number of different magazines. And so just keep doing your thing, girl. I'm proud of you. This is really, really cool. Make sure that uh, if they wanted to find you, I'm sure, because I know you're, you put content out on social media, how would they find you? Honestly, you know, pick your poison. I would Google me and whatever pops up that's the most relevant, do that. My website's getting revamped in the summer, so it's going to be more of a conversational, deep place where people can hang out and have better conversations. But um, Do you know what that URL is? Uh, CaraPayton.com. Cara with a K. <laughs> Payton with an A instead of an E. Yes, and, yes. And, and so because podcasts live out there forever and somebody might be listening to this a year later, mm-hmm. you know, we want to make sure that they're going to the, to the right place. Thank right. you so much. Are you a meat eater? I am. Okay. Well, did you hear me talking about the sponsor that we had of the Papa Ron podcast? I did. Yeah. So everybody on the Papa Ron podcast, who's a guest, is going to get a, a a gift package. Oh, beautiful. Uh-huh. And I'm trying to find it, but I don't have it here. It must not be in the right copy. But anyway, so you're going to get all kinds of steaks and burgers and <laughs> and ground beef and, and a whole bunch of other things. So thanks to Brown Piercy Cattle Company uh, for making that offer to all of our guests who uh, come on to the Papa Ron podcast. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I look forward to visiting you again in the future. If there's anything new and exciting that happens in your life, be sure to reach out. We can have you back on. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll be on uh, the old Happiness Habit podcast somewhere down the road, right? Talking about what we're doing over here on the Papa Ron podcast. Thank you so much to Kara Payton. Sorry, Jillian couldn't be on this week. We hope to have her next time. And whenever we do another episode of the Papa Ron podcast, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Papa Ron podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, hit subscribe now on the podcast platform. Follow the Papa Ron podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And while you're there, like, comment, and share. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Papa Ron podcast. Papa Ron podcast. Papa Ron podcast.